following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 159, the best of the Stuck Mike Avcast 2017, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, Happy New Year, and welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is an annual podcast where the co-hosts pick their favorite episode, and you can listen in a, on in a mini-marathon special that we have going on here. Of course, we want to send a special thank you to all our listeners, especially those that helped contribute to the podcast as occasional guest hosts. You know, the picture in the show notes on our website is from one of our active listeners and occasional guest host, Dave Abbey. We look forward to more news stories in the field from our wonderful listeners and our guest hosts. Hey, by the way, if you want to be a guest host, please send us an email at stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. You know, from everyone here at Stuck Mike Avcast, we hope you have a safe and happy new year. Look forward to hearing your flying adventures. Before we get started, a quick uh, message from our sponsor, Aviation Careers Podcast, for career advice and personalized coaching. You can listen to them at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Also, a quick announcement, uh, we will be at the Sport Aviation Expo coming up in January this year. It's uh, going to be soon after this is published, so go to sportaviationexpo.com. Well, let's get started with our first episode. The first episode is episode 148, The Challenges of Picking Up an IFR Clearance in the Air, and a Descend Via example. That was one of our more popular shows, so let's get started. From a listener, we get an email. It says, if you're clear to descend via the star on the Hyper 7, Hyper 7 for runway 19 center at Dulles, what altitude should you descend to? Now, before we start talking about this, if you're listening right now, if you go online, you're going to see that we have links to the Hyper 7 arrival and also the ILS to 19 Center at Dulles Airport. And uh, but before we even talk about doing the descend vias, remember that as a general aviation pilot, we are expecting to hear more of these descend via clearances, and that's one of the reasons we're talking about this. Also, for those of you that fly professionally and uh, and love general aviation we want to throw some things your way to talk about here in this podcast so that's another reason we're talking about this but the send via clearances are wonderful because the controller can just issue you the clearance it's simple they'll say descend via the hyper 7 for runway 197 at dulles international airport and now you have to figure out what altitude you need to descend to so before we, we go into this, I'm going to answer it real quickly uh, with, for 1-9, it's going to be 1-9 center again. It's going to be 7,000 feet. So let's back up and let's try to go through this whole process of that arrival. So what I want you to do, if you're, not, if you're just listening right now, I'm going to kind of talk through this arrival a little bit. 
and try to describe this in, in words as to what we're doing. But there's certain key points here that you don't need the pictures for, but it's, it'd be awesome if you had the pictures. So let's look at the, the Hyper 7. And, and, and Tom, Victoria, and Rick, let's try to pull that up. Uh, it'll be in the show notes, and it'll show the Hyper 7 arrival. The first page of that, okay, is is going to actually give you all the, the the transition routes to that arrival. That's how you get onto the arrival. You know, I like to always talk about stars as like a like an off ramp off the major highway. So you're going to get on this star, this terminal arrival procedure, and you're going to make your way in towards the airport. And by doing that, I don't have to, as a controller, tell you everything you need to do along that route and there's altitude restrictions etc that are along this arrival procedure looking at the first page it's pretty easy uh this person that asked us questions didn't say where they were coming from so let's just assume they're coming from albany new york and they're going to fly along this arrival on their way into the airport and we have a couple of different altitudes that are depicted on there there's uh, usually they'll have, and, and uh, the NACA charts is what we're going to use here. We're actually, because we can't really show the Jeppesen charts, by the way, I, I do need to mention that because of copyright restrictions, we haven't gotten permission by from Jeppesen to put them up here. Otherwise, there would, but these charts will be just fine. There's some notes along those charts about like radar required, RNAV1, DME, DME, IRU, or GPS required, turbojet or turbo. Uh, prop aircraft only, and aircraft capable of 180 knots or greater. So obviously this is in from from a professional pilot, but it's it's some really good stuff that we can learn from. So the first part of that, those transition routes, there's not many altitude restrictions, but there's a couple of altitudes that are printed on this chart. Tom's going to talk a little bit about that, but let me describe them. So uh, along this Albany route, you'll see flight level 180, and then you'll see flight level 180 from Atwan to, to Filga, and then on in. And you're going to see uh, that the altitude on the top, let's, let's look at uh, one that's easy to see. It's to Botlis to Jets, Botlis to Jets. It says 14,000, and then it says a, there's a star with a, with a 250 after it. So that top altitude, that, that 14,000 feet, is that minimum in root altitude, which, uh, Tom, I think you can maybe help describe what that means as far as, as this chart's concerned or in general what that is. Sure. So an MEA is, is the, um, the lowest published altitude between radio fixes, and it, and it assures navigational signal, signal coverage, and it also meets obstacle clearance requirements for those fixes. So, and that's, that's basically the definition out of the um, instrument procedures handbook from the FAA. So what's interesting about this, Tom, is that between those two fixes, we see 14,000, and then we see this little star or asterisk, and it says 2,500, and that sure. is, and what is that? It, that is a MOCA, so that is a minimum obstruction clearance altitude, and that is the lowest published altitude in effect between radio fixes on that VOR airway. Um, and on an off-route airway or a route segment that meets obstacle clearance requirements for the entire route segment. So it, you have obstacle clearance between the two um, nav aids, and then you have obstacle clearance over the entire route segment, which is your MOCA. So in this case, Tom, it, it's between these two fixes that we have that MOCA, which is 2,500 from Botless to Jets, and this is an RNAV arrival, so those are route fixes. Uh, so we, what's interesting about this, Tom, though, 
If you notice, the next one is 2,800. It actually goes up, doesn't it? So, yes. Why is that? Between those two fixes. From Jets to Sarah, it actually goes up. It was 2,500. Now it's 2,800. So that just meets what you just said, right? The, the obstruction clearance certification for that, that route. That route, yeah. exactly. Which is just and between it, Jets and which Sarah. Which means there's, there's higher obstacles in that route. Right, right, exactly. And that's, that's kind of the point I wanted to make there is, uh, and I, I kind of led you into that there, but it's uh, you actually may have a mocha during a route segment that's actually lower than the next segment. So you may think that you can go down to 2,500, but remember when you get to Jets, you'd actually have to, to climb up to 2,800. That's important uh, for a couple reasons, because if we want to get lower because of some reason operationally or staying out of icing, et cetera, we need to know those altitudes. Because if we stay at 2,500 after Jets, we're not going to really be safe. We're not guaranteed that obstruction clearance unless we can actually look outside the airplane VFR, and that's a, that's a very important point to make, is uh, is making sure that we stay above all those obstructions. So, good stuff uh, on the on the first part of that. Question for yes. you. Yes, yes, ma'am. Would there be a reason for a jet, an airliner, to be that low at this point in the route? Yeah, if we're burning up, if we have uh, say something inside with smoke in the cockpit, that kind of thing oh, okay. uh, is uh, or any. But kind typically. Of, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah no, <laughs> not like, normally. It would just be because if if we have to if we have a smoke or fumes event, we have to get below. The immediate thing you do is get down to ten thousand feet usually, uh, or the MEA or the Mocha, which is in this case the Mocha. We can get down to that low because if you notice, we need to get down to ten thousand. So when you're making a decision here. Uh, you see that 14,000 feet, but we know we have obstruction clearance between those two points. So we're really looking at those saying, okay, I need to depressurize this aircraft. I need to evacuate all the smoke from the mm-hmm. from the fuselage, and that's what I can do is get down to that low. It also helps, you know, obviously with the, the breathing of the passengers. We are on oxygen the whole time, so that's all that matters there. That Good question, sense. though. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let, let's look at this route going down to Delro intersection on the Dulles on the on the Hyper Seven arrival. That's actually where the transition routes end. So whether you're coming from like Robbinsville VOR, Barnes, Albany, Modena, uh, even Lancaster, etc., it's all going to end right there at Delro. So what do you need to do uh, when you get to Delro? Well, you know what. We need to flip the page, and we got to go over to the Hyper 7 arrival, the actual arrival routes, and, uh, and that actually has a much, uh, a much more uh, blown-up and descriptive description of this arrival here. It also has uh, the, all these different – and what's interesting is trying to figure out where the heck we're going on this arrival because he was talking about 1-9 center, and uh, remember I said uh, it's going to be – uh, at 7,000 feet, and there's an easy way that I came up with that. But let's kind of go through that, uh, and I'll tell you how I figured out 19 Center. Uh, there's there's a couple ways here, but the easiest way for me to do that is in the actual description of the arrival, and that's on another page. But let's let's just go because knowing that Cover intersection is actually the the portion of that arrival that brings me into 19 Center. I know that because I've flown there a bunch of times, but also if I didn't know that, it's easy enough to figure out. Not so you can much. kind of see it, right, in that chart. Exactly. Like someone, someone like me who who doesn't know this specifically, 
you know, but someone who sat outside of, of the arrival path for O'Hare for years and Brian worked <laughs> in Chicago, you know, th- which is just parallel approaches generally off the lake. It looks exactly like that, except there are three paths in. Right. All at about officially at 191. Right. It looks like. Yeah. And, and remember, there's uh, the 19 center, the 19 left, yeah. 19 right. So you can kind of, you do get that depiction there, don't you? Yeah. It's, totally. Yeah. So. But but Rick, that's a great point, and you kind of can follow that. But to really back it up is the next page actually has the route description, which is is textual description that tells you uh, how to arrive in this in this uh, arrival oh. pattern. So that's yeah. another way to do that. But yes, that's that's intuitive. Uh, so Rick, with that said, um, why do they have some of these other like? Tcon and Mike e, Mike J, I think is how you say it there, that are on the other sides of those. I mean, why are they putting those in there? They're for another reason, and that would be to go to other runways, right? Because you're going to continue on and then turn around when you get there. So, for instance, huh. right? Does that it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That you're going to pass the the airport and then turn around yeah. and land on one. So it's it's like you said, it's pretty intuitive, isn't it? Yeah. Even for somebody that doesn't have their instrument rating, Rick, I'm 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 just so impressed yeah. that you picked up on that. <laughs> trying to pay attention here, Carl. Trying to follow. I'm, I'm trying to be Joe Joe listener. This is awesome, and, and he gets the big star. I, you know, I think you should get your instrument rating just for that one. Okay, but, sure. Uh, no, that that was good, and that's great that you picked up on that because these are, you know, very intuitive. These arrivals, so. Let's pick up on here on the on the Delro arrival, and if you look at Delro, remember we stopped at the other uh, transition routes. Now we're on the arrival. You'll notice the next fix is Lurch, and it has this fourteen thousand feet, and it's got a line above it and a line below it. Uh, and I'll ask Rick this, and of course uh, it might be intuitive. What does that mean, having that, those two lines there? Okay, I'm totally lost. So just so, go ahead. I'll so find it. no, it, and and so if you see a number and there's a line above it and there's a line below it. That's telling you that uh, you can cross and you have to cross at that altitude. That means you have to cross at that altitude. So when you're descending, oh. that lurch, L-I-R-C-H, it's after Delro, uh, on the Hyper 7 on the arrival routes. If you're following along in the show notes, you'll see it here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that, that oh, actually means lurch. you... Yeah, the next page. Yeah, the second page. So we're on the, the second page. It'll actually show lurch intersection. And it says mm-hmm. you have to cross Lurch at 14,000 feet. So that's a cross at restriction. How about the next one? You have uh, Bins intersection and uh, depicted on Bins. And this is kind of, I'm going to go into a little bit of a tangent for just one second. Uh, you'll notice there's a holding pattern there. Yeah. And yeah. it's depicted, it says 265 knots, uh, seven nautical miles. Uh, the reason they put those on there is uh, can you take a guess, Rick, since you're doing so well? <laughs> why 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 would they put that that holding pattern there? Well, for traffic, no. Right, for- exactly. If they want to slow people down, uh, they'll say, "Hey, listen, hold it bins as as published." They right. may even which say, is so that you so both sides of the equation know to expect the yeah. potential for something there. Awesome, perfect. Right? Rather than a random location. Perfect. So if they in that way, they don't have to describe it to you either. So right. now they've just saved all this time. They say, yeah, hold as depicted, and you just hold right there at bins. And they say, oh, yeah, continue on to hyper, hold as, as, as published, and they'll hold right. you there at hyper, which is the next one at 210 knots with four nautical mile legs. And, uh, and of course, those, those are, are great to have because then you know that you're going to expect that. And it's like when you start hearing people holding, you're like, uh-oh, I need to put this in my FMS or into my GPS, into my, my, uh, you know, my Garmin 
that I need to hold at that position. So let's get let's continue on down that past the bins intersection, and then move over to Hyper, which Hyper is actually the name of this arrival, the Hyper Seven arrival. And uh, from this Hyper Seven point, okay, from excuse me, from this Hyper point is where we start branching off. But before we branch off to the specific runways where we're going to land, there's something we need to do uh, before we actually head in that direction if we were given a clearance. And that would be, and this is on a descend via clearance. So let me, let me just uh, back up for two seconds. When we were on this arrival, we were, say, at an altitude of 25,000 feet. If they gave us the descend via the Hyper 7 arrival, we would know we would descend down to 7,000, because remember I said that before at Cover Intersection, 7,000, but there's certain restrictions that we have on here. Lurch is one of them. Hyper is another one. We'll talk about that in a minute. One of the reasons they have these restrictions has to do with, well, there's a couple of different reasons, but one of them has a lot to do with the airspace, and we may have departures going out underneath us, and they don't want you descending down below that. It also allows them to free up the airspace so they don't have to continually tell you, hey, listen, wait at 14,000 at Lurch, then you can start descending to 10,000 feet at Hyper. So you see those little lines, the above and below lines, and then it says 10,000 feet, and that's at Hyper Intersection. So, Tom, I'm going to ask you this question. Next to that Hyper at 10,000 feet, it means we have to cross. We have to cross at 10,000. There's something else to the right. Uh, with like a little lightning strike that goes to hyper intersection and says 250K. What's that telling us? That you have to cross it at 250 knots. And that's an at symbol because that's a, above and below. One of the things that, that uh, you know, Tom, we've talked about this a bunch of times, but I think it's something we need to stress uh, to, to listeners is that when you're on an arrival, you're on an arrival, and you see a restriction as far as airspeed a restriction that's an airspeed restriction even if you were not given the descend via clearance meaning descending down to an altitude but you're on an arrival you still must comply with the speed restrictions descend via has to do with altitude but on the arrival there's a speed restriction unless you're told otherwise so if you're you're on this arrival and you weren't given a descent via, say you were at 30,000 feet along the arrival, you still, even if you're at 30,000 feet, you have to slow down to 250 knots on this arrival. And that, that makes some sense, doesn't it? And uh, so I, I really think this is a, an important p- point because a lot of people m- uh, mess this up. I'm not going to go into some of the other nuances on the, on the descend via because we have that in a whole other article. But let's just continue on with this arrival. And so after the hyper intersection at 10,000. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I'm trying to follow along because it's been a while since I've done anything close to this. Um, say you were at 30,000 feet and they didn't give you a descend via, you still have to be at 10,000 feet by this point, um, right? You're nah, still good, following. Very good question. And actually, you don't. If okay. they have not given you a descend via clearance, if they haven't de- told you to descend at all, you have to remain at 30,000 feet. Great point. So you're point. staying up there even though this exactly. is the requirement, be there yeah. at 10,000 at that point. And, and at that point, you're going to tell the controller, hey, guys, uh, hello. I'm supposed to be down here. Yeah, this, <laughs> this ain't going to work. So you're going to need to do something. Maybe you should put me in that holding pattern at hyper intersection and let me descend to 10,000 feet, then continue on, and that can happen. Uh, actually, that's a great 
great point you brought up because this happens also often is that you're on this arrival and they forget every so often that happens they either they forget or they have traffic give them the benefit of the doubt and they say okay maintain thirty thousand but now they want you to descend via the arrival and you you're just sitting there like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm already at Delroy Intersection. I'm at 30,000 feet. I am not going to make it there. So normally, one of the things you'll hear when uh, on the radio, this happened to me yesterday, actually. I'll say, hey, listen, do you want the altitude or do you want the airspeed? Because I can't do both of those things. I can't slow down and go down at the same time. Normally, they want you to do the altitude. You may not even make that altitude. So that's when you use the term unable. And we're going to try our best to get down. So make sure you do you do stress that with the controller. If you cannot make any restriction because of the operation of your aircraft, you just tell them you can't do it. Because uh, that that was them. That's the, they held you there for a while for whatever reason. So uh, great point though, Victoria, is that you cannot descend it out to you don't start down. This is actually a question that's brought up almost every time in the seminars that we do on this uh, descend via is that if they're giving you an arrival and they haven't given you a clearance to descend, do I just go down to that 10,000 feet? No, you don't descend until they tell you to descend. With airspeeds, now we switch over to airspeeds, it's different. You actually have to slow to those airspeeds that are depicted on there. Two totally different things. There's an airspeed and there's an altitude. So don't ever descend until you're told to descend via. Uh, but that was an awesome question. That uh, that question does come up almost every time during a seminar. Um, Anyway, following along, and I know that this is really complex, a lot of fun, uh, and this arrival is complex, so I, that's why I love this thing. So we're at Hyper, and, and uh, as uh, Rick said, you know, 1-9 Center is, well, that's the one in the middle, isn't it? And so we're going to go from Hyper to Cover Intersection, and at Cover it says at 7,000 feet. And then we descend below 10,000, below 250 knots, because we're there already, to 7,000 feet. Afterwards... We don't go any lower until we're told to. And this gets a little confusing because now I have to make it onto the approach. So let's just stay here for a second on this arrival. We've made it to 7,000 feet. We were at, say, 30,000 feet. We're told to descend via. We stopped at 7,000 feet. Again, when can I start down? I can't start down until I'm vectored for the approach or I'm told to descend to another altitude. But my bottom altitude, quote-unquote bottom altitude, is 7,000 feet. And I'm going to make sure I make it down to that 7,000. Does that make sense? Any questions on that before we head on to the approach? All right. What are, what are those numbers just below uh, mm-hmm. Cover, below okay. the 7,000? So what they've done here is, uh, if you notice, uh, the MEAs and the MOCAs, they were easy to read. Up yeah. uh, between the other points, what they've had to do to put it on the chart, you mean the four thousand and the thirty four hundred? They've had to they've had to turn that. So oh, that's, that's your MOCA okay. and your MEA. So the, the way you can make sure it's the MOCA is with that, that star, the asterisk thirty four hundred, and the right. four thousand is the MEA. Okay. So does that make sense? Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, so and, we and can, Rick, if you good. look there's different pieces of information there. It's it's a three mile leg, it's a heading of one nine one. One nine one. Right, your MEA, your MEA is four thousand, and your MOCA is three thousand four hundred. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that's that's a great great point there, Tom. Because then after a dim key, we go another five miles to to Hooser, and okay. uh, where we pick up the approach. Which we I was going to say. So so that's it's interesting. Now, why in the world is that depicted on that? And uh, Tom, you just said it. It's actually on the approach there, isn't it? 
So why don't we do that? Let's flip over. If you're, you're again, you're on the the website, click over to One Nine Center, and hopefully we're describing this for people that aren't aren't here right now. But at one on One Nine Center, Hoser Hoser uh, intersection is that it says to cross at or above five thousand feet. There's a five thousand with a line below it. Uh, if we look at the profile view on the approach plate for One Nine Center ILS localizer DME to runway One Nine Center, we are at seven thousand feet. And uh, we can't go down until we are allowed to go down. So if they say to us, maintain 7,000, or they don't say anything. If they say descend via the clearance, and we're at 7,000, and then they give us a clearance to, uh, to, for the approach, we have to wait until we actually at or below Hoser inter- or Hooser intersection to start our descent, unless the controller says to us, descend to, say, 5,000 feet, or they can even tell us to descend to... 4,000 feet, and people are like, oh my god, they can't do that. Well, the reason they can descend you lower than that 5,000 feet is that is another term, and that's their minimum vectoring altitude, which you will not see on these charts. The controllers can actually vector you. If you feel you're in trouble or there's an issue and you feel like you might hit the ground, you may query them and actually may say, do you really want us to maintain 4,000 feet? And they'll say, yes, maintain 4,000, you're clear for the ILS to runway 19 center. Uh, but if you are just strictly clear for this approach, you're going to wait till you get to Hooser intersection. What's interesting about that intersection, so if you can look at that profile view of, of Hooser, and that's the side view there, there's uh, some interesting ways to figure out uh, that you're actually at that intersection. Um, and Tom, what, what's one way you can figure out that you're at Hooser intersection? Let's see, 17.5 DME? Right, right. Um, so say if everything just kind of pooped out on me, my DME, et cetera, just pooped out, and all I've got is my ILS, and uh, I can actually still identify that if I'm still talking to them and uh, I'm still in radar contact, can I, for the Hooser intersection? One of the ways, again, is with the radar, because it says radar. That's a radar intersection. Also, sure. another substitution here that... Uh, is the... Go ahead. One, the 124... Um, what is that? Yes. Yeah, the off one... Of, <laughs> off of... Um, what is that? Martinsburg. Martinsburg, right, right. Uh, there's, a, there's another way, and I, I'm glad you said that, is there's another way to determine where that is, and that's off the Martinsburg VOR, the 124 radial, and 20.5 DME, or the intersection of that radial and the, and the localizer, will allow you to figure out where that is. The radar, the DME, and there's even one more, and that's for us, because we're flying with a new... Garmin G1000, and we can use our GPS to substitute for DME. So that's another way we can find that. We have Hooser intersection in our database, and we can see it there. So there's many ways to describe that intersection. And and see how, how this goes? We, we can actually have all these different failures, but still we can actually do this approach even though we don't have radar, we don't have DME, our VOR has failed, although that would be a bad day, and uh, or say the Martinsburg VOR failed. Let's just say that. And our ILS is the only thing that's working. We can still do this approach. We can still do this approach if we have our GPS and we can substitute for that uh, position there at Hooser. So then you can arrive on the approach. What you're going to he- hear from them 
Uh, it says here uh, on the approach plate, by the way, it says DME or radar required. Of course, we can substitute our GPS for that DME there. Uh, we actually have to have those, but uh, what you're going to hear on this approach, going back to what I was going to say, is uh, maintain, let's just say a clearance is maintain 5,000. You're clear for the ILS DME runway 19 center approach. And then you can actually arm your approach and head on down uh, the localizer all the way uh, towards the runway. So hopefully that's helped a little bit. Uh, questions. My next thing is uh, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions on this one. And I, we're not going to dive into the approach as much as the descend via. But remember, there's always a way to get on the highway. And there's always a way to get off the highway. Doing the star and connected to an ILS is one way to get off the highway in the sky. And uh, there's many ways that we depict those points. And I think it's it's very helpful to understand those things. And if you're having some confusion as to what I need to do on a descend via, we have a couple other videos, et cetera, out there. But you're not alone. It's it's very it can be very confusing. But if you just remember those simple rules that you can't start descending, and I'm glad that, glad that Victoria brought this up, you cannot start descending until you are told to descend via the arrival. Uh, a couple other things, if they tell you to descend like to 20,000 feet, you're only allowed to go down to 20,000 feet. If they tell you to descend via, you go down to the bottom altitude. How do you find that? It's the lowest altitude detected, and then that's cover intersection. If you have a problem trying to figure that out, you go over to the arrival description. It's always nice to go back to, to a written description, uh, and it makes it uh, really easy. The other thing, too, in there, if you notice in the, the arrival description on the previous page, it says to expect ILS localizer 19 center and uh, and that's actually for you that uh, on the arrival if you have any type of, of communication failure you can expect that you know as far as descending and the route that you fly that will actually allow you to fly that arrival depending on what time you arrive at the airport so good stuff though great question um and i love it i you know we don't mind taking these questions from from you folks that are professional pilots because of the fact that these are very they're they're difficult uh in some respects but if you go back to the to the basic rules and just break it down they actually are a lot a lot simpler than uh, than you can imagine any other questions before we move on tom is there anything you wanted to add victoria uh rick before we go on to our next question no, oh, that was awesome. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, good. And I and and like I said, we could actually go through this whole approach plate, and there's a bazillion things, maybe not a bazillion, but a lot of things that we could talk about on that just on just that approach plate alone. It's a lot of fun. So uh, if you have any questions on that approach, just please let us know. Uh, anyway, the next one comes in, and we've uh, I think yeah, we definitely have time for this one. Uh, and by the way, awesome question, very simple question. But a lot to it, wasn't it? Uh, the next one comes in from a listener that, uh, and we're not going to say his name or anything. But oh, and by the way, if you have a question like this, and you describe your name and the place, etc., we're not going to we're not going to actually uh, describe your name. We're not going to describe where you are, that type of thing. But we're going to go through the scenario because it's very helpful for our listeners, and we also want to protect you, and you know, so you don't have any issues with violations, etc. Uh, this person's flying a Piper, has an old GPS. And uh, an iPad as well, and was following along a, r a route of flight, filed a flight plan, and uh, says that he was on, um, the weather on this trip uh, was down to VFR on top, 
for some, and then VFR all the way down. So during that trip, uh, m- some of the part of the trip was VFR on top, but VFR all the way down. Uh, and he continues, okay, so we're going to start his journey. We're going to start on this journey on his flight. Uh, he spoke with, with the RDU, uh, Raleigh-Durham, and then Washington Center, who handed him off to Cherry Point for the last point of the flight. It was just, he was uh, scheduled to depart Saturday, however, uh, had marginal VFR and some convective activity. They waited for the weather to open and then filed and was going to file, fly out and get on top and then come back the same route. Uh, had marginal VFR at the airport, so it looked, looked pretty good at home. The ceiling was coming up, and it appeared we'd also see a VFR by the time we got near home. At no time was it in our forecast to be IFR, so it looked okay to make the trip. I called flight service, got the, late, the last weather briefing, then filed IFR home. We departed VFR, announced our intentions, waited till we got clear of the airport, then changed frequencies to call Cherry Point to activate an IFR flight plan. So departed VFR and activating the IFR flight plan. There was another aircraft departing doing the same thing. I called Cherry Point and didn't hear a thing. The other aircraft was calling and asking the same thing, but no response. My old Cherokee, my old rental Cherokee, wasn't going to get above the cloud layers without going through them. The plan was to not activate, and I knew I couldn't be legal to fly through them, so I descended down to 3,000, then down to 2,500 on the Victor Airway, and kept calling Cherry Point while maintaining my distance from the clouds. After about 10 minutes, it was clear that I wasn't going to get them on the phone. Now I'm stuck underneath this layer and could end up being forced down. I checked the weather all the way down my route, and it was reported, quote-unquote, that I would be okay, but I know weather changes, and I wasn't happy with what I had been handed. I decided to call Washington Center. They could barely hear me, but we did make contact. However, I was too low for them to pick me up on radar. In fact, I was threading the needle between two restricted areas, one called Giant Killer. We're over the water, Shore to the left, water and shore to the right, and no one has me on radar. Washington told me to turn 30 degrees left to see if I a contact they had might they had excuse me a contact they had might be me. This pointed me to one of the restricted areas, so we only did this turn and heading for a few minutes, then turned back. They didn't see me on radar. I had picked an alternate, so I went and landed at the alternate near the water. It was about 43 nautical miles downrange from our starting point. We had marginal VFR, but got in safe and sound. I spent the next hour talking to flight service, then departed and worked our way home. Now my question. I couldn't activate my flight plan because I didn't have contact. I could barely hear Washington Center and didn't want to activate nor climb through solid IMSC for a long time since I am new instrument a new instrument pilot that's important what was the best thing to do continue go back file on the ground and activate on the ground with a void time and start over what are your thoughts Boy, there's a lot here and this is a great question i really appreciate your writing in and asking this question and i know tom and i are both gonna uh, you know since we have a lot of instrument students that we work with we both have different philosophies on this uh, when there's anything, uh, and I'll just, and we had a conversation writing back and forth. 
At the airlines, we used to be able to depart VFR. One of the reasons we can is because of this. Uh, we will actually file on the ground, wait for a clearance void time, even though it's far in the future, and then go. Just like he was talking, what should you do? I'd suggest that. Just, just wait, call up flight service, ask for a clearance void time, then get off the ground during that and fly and try to get radar contact there. But with that clearance void time and with that clearance, there's a chunk of airspace that is actually yours, and you will be actually separated from other aircraft. Interestingly enough, uh, I fly out of Tampa a lot, out of Peter O'Knight Airport, and I fly into Tampa International over Peter O'Knight Airport. And uh, both flying the jet and flying the, the, the prop airplanes, I notice two things. When I'm flying the jet in, a lot of times they'll hold me really high, because they'll say, hey, we have an IFR departure off of Peter O'Knight, or I have an IFR departure off a non-towered airport, so we're going to have to wait till we get radar contact. They're waiting for that radar contact, so they get separation from me up here flying the jet or from any of those other, the other folks flying the props down below, but they're making sure that we actually have separation. And not until you get radar contact will they let me descend if I'm coming in, you know, flying high in the jet, or will they let anybody else take off near that airport until they have radar contact with you? Then you're back to regular operating procedures. So that's, that's what I would probably suggest in this condition here is to go ahead and fly. I know it's hard IMC. Uh, if you're not comfortable with that, I, I really commend you for doing that and not just jumping up and, and trying to go below or above your, uh, your minimums. And I think that's great. We all have to set those minimums as far as IFR. So, so Tom, I'm curious, um, with, with your students and just in general, what do you think uh, this, this gentleman should do at this point? Yeah, you know, I was, I was looking over this thing, and, and I'm the same way. I, I kind of like to get clearances as soon as I possibly can, and I've gotten them in several different places. Um, I did notice that with the, at uh, Henderson, where he departed from, there was a GCO where he could have used that as well. He could have used that GCO, and, and it was Raleigh approach, and he could have got his clearance there, I think, before you even leave the ground. Usually when they put it in the AFD like that, you, or, or the, the uh, chart supplement, as, as it's called now, you can get that clearance at that point. And, and you will. You'll get a clearance void time, which you know you should probably be asking for that after your run-up and everything's done because it's probably not going to be a very large window of opportunity. But at least at that point, you have your clearance. So, Tom, um, as far as the GCO is concerned, just uh, what what is that GCO one more time? Uh, a grounds clearance, ground clearance outlet. Yeah, the, the the communications outlet, whatever you want to call it, but yeah, the GCO. Ground communications <laughs> outlet, yeah. But now they can you can contact uh, air traffic control. So in doing that, you have a direct line, and uh, they still will give you a void time. But at least you're talking to them directly. Another way to do that, which I think is is an idea, I don't know, Tom, if you do this, and I used to do this all the time, I haven't done this in a little while, is uh, instead of using a GCO, is use my cell phone. Sure, absolutely. And, th and that was what I was saying before, is that I've used the cell phone beforehand, and, and they'll give you the, clear, the clearance void times they give you, they're pretty tight, you know, I mean, and that's why I wanted, I made sure to say that we uh, try to get all our run-ups and everything done before we actually make the phone call, because, you know, they'll give you a clearance and they'll say, you know, clearance void time is uh, uh, 1345, time now 1342, you know, and you literally got three minutes to get up in the air and, and contact departure. Right. Um, by the way, and those, those ground communications outlets, uh, something a lot of people don't realize is you can actually close your VFR flight plan over a GCO. 
So next time you fly into an airport, you can actually get in touch with them that way. I know a lot of people use cell phones, but it's just another way to, to get in touch sure. with them. Uh, but and I was looking for one specifically, Carl, but I know that they've just started um, using telephone numbers specifically mm-hmm. for doing clearances. And, and many of the major outlets and, and um, even a lot of the regional outlets now are starting to publish in the um, – in the chart supplement, a, a specific phone number within your FISDO that you can call to get those clearances. I, I think that's awesome that they're doing that, and uh, it really makes life a lot easier is to contact people by cell phone. Another idea, too, to get a clearance and a clearance void time, and something that actually I do most often without using a GCO, is I call approach control or departure control and uh, say, hey, listen, I'm over here at such and such an airport. A good example, I fly to San Juan a lot and into Puerto Rico, and I'll say, hey, I'm at Aguadilla, and uh, I need to pick up a clearance and uh, also would like to get a clearance for a departure. And they'll say, hey, yeah, your clearance is void if not off by such a time, and if you are not off by that time, call us back, and you're cleared up to 3,000 feet. We take off, we contact the, the CTAF, uh, the common traffic advisory frequency, we take off. We get up to, say, uh, 2,000 feet after we're out of the traffic pattern. We talk to approach control, and they say, radar contact, bing, we're done. Now they have the, the regular separation standards once we're in radar contact. So another thing you can do, and I, I think this is discounted a lot, I think, is uh, is with not contacting approach control. I think that's another avenue. And I've done that actually within the Tampa area where there is a GCO and I couldn't get them on the GCO on the ground communications outlet and I could actually contact them using approach control and uh, say, hey, you know, hey, I'm going to depart over here at Peter O'Knight. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, we can hear you. Hey, listen, you know, I want to I go now. Can I get a, a clearance? And like, oh, yeah, hang on one minute. And uh, they'll say, okay, you're... You're cleared to depart at such and such a time, clearance void if not off by. And, and I, I like the point that you made, Tom, where it's actually a, it's a small window, isn't it? It's like five, ten minutes. And if you don't get off, then you can't go, can you? I, I don't I don't know. but I've, Well, in the, the area that we're down here, I don't think I've ever gotten as much as ten minutes. It's yeah. usually been quicker than that. Yeah. So, so if you don't take off, you need to contact them directly because – uh, one of the things they're going to do if you take off, or excuse me, if they don't hear from you, it doesn't matter if you take off or not. If they don't hear from you, the first thing they're going to do is is a, a, a start a search and rescue, which really is a minor thing at first. They finally they call the airport, say, hey, did that guy take off or that gal take off? And uh, if you are sitting on the runway and they see you and they say, no, he's sitting here, it's like, okay, good. The next thing you do, hopefully, is contact them and say, hey, listen, I can't get off the ground. I'm going back to the gate. I've got to, I'm going back to the terminal. I need to, to fix something. Something broke. I'm still on the ground. And then they can open that airspace. But remember, they have to keep that airspace closed. Uh, if you take off, and they then they have to start what's called search and rescue, but search first and find out where you are. Hopefully, you'll pop up on the radar right away, especially with the the transponder code that they gave you. So, important thing right. to do. Go ahead. Right, right, right. And that was a good point because I wanted to make that is that they're not using the small window of time just because they're you know just mean and just want to get you off the ground real quick. It's because they're clearing out that entire airspace and giving it just to you so that you can get off the ground safely and they can get you on your way. And when they clear out that airspace, they can't let anybody else in it. So they want to make it as minimal as possible so that they're not restricted. Yeah, efficiency is important, uh, and they're not really being mean. Although some days I feel like they are being mean just to me. And uh, well, but I, that's you, but that's you, Carl. 
I know. It's what did I do to them? I'm a nice guy. I just try it's to be. Pod, it's that podcast guy. I know it's him, and they're gonna. No, we're not gonna let him in the airspace. Uh, it, what's interesting is that uh, we do sometimes say that some of these controllers are mean to us, etc. Listen, they're people. They have bad days too. So I try to be very patient. I was on the radio the other day with a you know a, a actually a ground controller that was being kind of mean. I thought. And uh, told a joke, then finally kind of broke the ice. But uh, I thought I was going to be holding on the ramp for the next two hours until I did that. Uh, so yes, they're they're trying to be as safe as possible. That's for sure. Uh, one of the things, though, I want to stress in this question, I think it, it's all, it takes a lot of guts to actually write in and tell us this situation. I, I'm so happy you did uh, because I think it's going to help myself and other listeners here. But this is this is not just you. That's all. This happens to a lot of people, and uh, don't feel bad about it. I like the fact that you took the most conservative route and you decided to go to uh, your alternate land, figure out what to do, and then take off and climb. You also had these minimums, which I love that uh, the fact that, and it's implied in your discussion here that your minimums for departure and in route. As far as your IFR minimums, how long you're going to be off IFR, that type of thing, are also included there, which I really, really enjoy that you do that. And Tom, I know, um, you know, I don't instruct a lot right now, but uh, in general, when you have a new IFR pilot that you've actually said, okay, you're now an instrument pilot, do you tell them, hey, listen, you know, set some minimums and and don't don't go beyond those for a while? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know. I, I have my own, and, and it depends on what I'm flying, um, you know, what the mission is. But I have a, a very specific one, that, and it's a statement that I will not go flying if the clouds are lower than blank, the visibility is less than blank, the wind is greater than blank, and the freezing level is lower than blank. And all of those things play into what type of uh, mission I'm flying, and I'm, I'm going to set those personal minimums. And, um, you know, mine are a lot higher. I look at some of these minimums down to approaches and stuff like that. Depends on how many approaches I've been flying. You know, I, I, we got an ILS that comes into my home airport. I can go down to 210 feet. If I have a 200-foot ceiling, I'm just going to go home and have breakfast. I'm not going to go flying that day. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's below my minimums. You know, mine right now are right around the 500-foot level. And that's, I don't, I don't want to go much lower than that right now. And and that's because it allows you to get back in if you have a problem, right? That's another reason. Absolutely. Well, and and part of what you were describing, you know, about this person that wrote in, you know, it's that old saying, you know, you'd rather be on the ground wishing you were in the sky than in the sky wishing you were on the ground, you know? Right. When in doubt, put it down on the ground and, and drop back 10 and punt and figure out what you're going to do next and, and go on. And that's what this person described they did there. And that's good pilotage. You know, sure. that's that's good good decision making. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and by the way, another question that came up from this, and another side note, that we were talking offline is, you know, why is it the airlines can take off its its below minimums? Like you just talked about two hundred and ten feet. Why is it if there's a hundred foot ceiling and a quarter mile visibility that the airliners can still take off? Well, that's because they can actually go to a takeoff alternate. In other words. They have the ability, or we have the ability, to take off with an airliner and not be able to get back to the airport we took off from. And we make sure that we have enough enough fuel to fly for up to an hour to a takeoff alternate, another airport where we can land. Say it's VFR just 50 miles away, then we can easily fly over there and land if we lose an engine. But we know we're not going to get back in there. So remember that that you you know you see that all the time, and that's that's why that happens. And uh, the fact that you have these minimums and it's because you want to get back in, I think, is a great, great idea. Uh, and I know it's it's disconcerting to some when they start flying IFR, but 
as you as you move along, just like Tom said, you have certain minimums. I know uh, one of them I think that you mentioned that was really good is icing. A lot of us that fly in the the southern regions, we don't fl- we don't think about icing, but it sure does happen uh, in the in the winter in the south. Yeah, you're going to get icing, especially if you're climbing up to an inward altitude. You can easily get icing at those altitudes. So just think about that. Just because you're in Florida, you're in Georgia, etc., uh, you can you can definitely get some icing in the the southern regions. But uh, anyway, as far as as far as the thoughts on that, I think that was awesome. I think you did a great job, uh, the listener that that wrote in on this. And uh, really appreciate the feedback there. And by the way, if you have a similar story and want to write in, contact at stuckmikeavcast.com just to go over something that's this technical. Uh, we love doing these episodes where it gets it's really, really technical, especially IFR-wise. Uh, if you have any other questions, write in anything on those charts. Don't forget, we have those blown up in, in a large JPEG format where you can actually look at those. And and if there's anything on those charts that we have online in this episode and in episode 148, just ask us and, and we'll, uh, we'll answer it in another episode because it will help other people. And next up is our next most popular episode, and that's from uh, it's episode 156, from Cessna to F-16, One Pilot's Dream Come True. And, of course, that was with Sean Moody, one of our uh, former hosts and occasional guest co-host here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Yeah, good to be back. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys having me back on. It's been a bit. It has been a bit. And, you know, all of us on the podcast, we really don't talk about our, or some of us can't talk about our day, day jobs and like myself and all without doing all these uh, different disclaimers. And it's really cool that I can finally, we're, we're coming out today with you and, and realizing that, yes, you are <laughs> you are a, a, a true reporter and uh, somebody with a, a very, very extensive journalism background. Uh, and because of that, you've actually had some exciting opportunities. One of them is obviously this, being able to fly in an F-16, and some other events that you've been able to go to. And uh, and I think that's a true blessing for somebody who, who's very much involved in aviation. Um, but before we get started about this whole F-16 ride that you, you, you got to, to go on, number, where are you in your, your journey as far as aviation? I know you got your private and you're working on some other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got the private and, and instrument and commercial over the years, and so CFI is going to be the next step. I'm, I'm out of currency at the moment, so um, I've had some talks with some of the instructors at a, at a flight school here uh, just north of town and uh, needing to kind of get the, get the rust off a bit. Um, but I'm hoping to move on to CFI and uh, get back in the swing of things. Um, I've been up a couple of times in the in the last couple of years or so and recognized that I could still hold altitude and hold heading and things like that. So the rust isn't too far gone. I think mainly it's uh, a lot of uh, book work and things like that. I know um, the last time I was flying actively, PTS was still a thing. Now it's uh, ACS. So a little bit of different you know, regulatory things. But um, yeah, I don't think it'll take too much to get back in the game. So I guess I have to correct. You are a commercial pilot, and uh, you are a yeah. rusty pilot that's actually back in the game, which is really cool to see. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you want to learn about ACS, we have a great episode if you go back and listen to, uh, you know, Eric. He actually put a, Eric Crump put together a great presentation on ACS. He was very much involved in that. So uh, if you're wondering what we're talking about, you know, check it out, uh, the Airman Certification Standards. It's a really, really interesting podcast. But anyway, Sean, uh, now you're out in... Uh, Utah, and uh, you had this very fortunate event because of your position uh, with the local television station. So tell us a little bit about how you were able to actually get yourself into a seat 
on an F-16 because we all want to know so we can try to get an <laughs> F-16 ourselves. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was one of the things when I, I kind of stumbled into the TV news job. Um, you know, you always, if you're into aviation and air shows, you always see the local reporters in the backseat of a Thunderbird or a Blue Angel uh, when, when things come to town. So I always kind of thought, well... You know, I never became a fighter pilot, so the only way into the cockpit is just to, you know, keep plugging away at this uh, TV reporter thing, and maybe it'll happen one day. So uh, I moved out here to Utah uh, in January, um, and turns out we've got an Air Force base just up the road, Hill Air Force Base. And they've uh, they've been, since the F-16 came online uh, back in the late 70s, they've been an F-16 base. And they are uh, transitioning now, and actually have finished the transition to F-35s. And so... Um, this actually, the, this assignment came from, uh, from one of our producers. Uh, she texted me one day and she said, uh, Hey Sean, have you ever been in an F-16? And I just was like, no, <laughs> why? <laughs> Thinking that maybe something might be in the works. So, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough. They knew I had uh, a passion for airplanes and aviation and, um, had planned to do this sort of farewell to the F-16, uh, series and uh and just figured i'd be the uh the right person to do it so um i had been on base uh a couple of times for other just you know little sort of day of stories um so i was a little bit familiar with some of the the pr people up there um and so uh my producer got in touch with the people that she knows there and uh got the ball rolling and i didn't talk about it for a long time because i was afraid that if i got too excited about it or told a lot of people about it something would happen and the uh, the ride would go away so I didn't say anything publicly about it until the morning of, um, and even up until I was I was ready, up until we hit the runway uh, for the possibility that you know they would have to cut the flight for some reason. I did not want to get myself too excited because I didn't want to deal with the disappointment. <laughs> um, but yeah, it happened. And so it was awesome. In in getting prepared for this flight, there's some things you had to do. I mean, you can't just jump into an F-16 and throw on, on that suit. I mean, you were all suited up, looked pretty cool, and uh, looked like a fighter pilot. Did you know What goes into actually that ride? I mean, you can't just go ahead and do it. They have to prepare you, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, there were a couple of things. I went to my own doctor to get a you know, kind of a physical uh, letter that says, you know, um, Sean is, is cleared medically to fly. Had to go to an Air Force doctor on base, get the same thing. Um, I, I was pretty close on the uh, the hip to head height. Um, I couldn't have taken very much more out of uh, I'd have been out of their parameters for flying. I'm kind of a tall guy, so I was lucky that I came in just under the limit. Um, so I had to do those two things, and then I had to go. Um, I was up at Hill Air Force Base the day before uh, for um, pretty much a full day of training when it came to the um, ejection seat. And how to uh, how to handle all your your um, ejection gear, how to land. Um, they, you know, one, of, you know, besides actually being in the airplane, one of the most fun things was practicing hitting the ground. If you had to actually eject, you'd you'd jump off this eh, two and a half, three foot high platform and learn how to hit your your toes, ankles, knees, hips, and shoulders, so that you don't break anything if you do have to eject and and land on the ground. Um, so there was that, um, you know, a little bit of a, a survival course. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun because I was in there with, um, you know, I was the only civilian in there. Everybody else was, uh, you know, a lot of airmen who were getting incentive rides. Um, so it was kind of cool to be in that environment um, and kind of recognized how privileged I was to be in that environment. 
That's pretty awesome. As far as during that process, I know a lot of people have been asked to actually go up and fly. And like you said, you didn't want to get too excited because I know a few people have had to been turned down for it because of more so physical things, you know, that you, you realize that, hey, you know, if you have too high blood pressure or whatever, you, you can't go up. And, and that's kind of a disappointment for some people. But it's just such a blessing to be able to do such a thing. And it, it's awesome that you were able to do this. Now, that whole process, that took hours, I guess, to get ready. Yeah, um, there was the, you know, the, the day before I was on base the whole day. Um, also getting fitted for all the uh, the flight suit, um, the the helmet, uh, all that stuff. The, <laughs> I have a picture on my phone. My favorite thing was uh, the day before the flight. Um, they you know they were in kind of the locker room where everybody gets ready, and I actually you know it wasn't the most official thing. It was my name on a piece of duct tape. But for 24 hours, I had a locker in that uh, <laughs> in that locker room along with the you know the actual fighter pilot. So I was like, all right, that's, that's pretty cool. But yeah, so, um, an hour or so of, of getting all this stuff fitted the day before. And then the morning of the flight, um, getting fitted with the, the G suit, um, the helmet, all that stuff. It's, it's a production. I mean, I guess once you are used to it and you pretty much have all the things figured out, it's a lot more, you know, easy to get everything on and walk out to the airplane. But when you're just a, a newbie like me trying to get it all on, <laughs> it's, it's a process. And I'm sure everyone who's familiar with it just sits back and laughs. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, Sean. Let's let's just roll some tape here, real quick, from your ride. I know that. Uh, oh, and if you want to watch the video, don't forget to go to the website at uh, Stuck Mike Avcast. Uh, it's episode one fifty six. We'll have uh, a long video there. We're just gonna uh, a short little peek into to your experience there. So, uh, Mr. Producer, could you roll the tape? We can throw numbers and facts and figures at you all day long to tell you what the F-16 is like, but the only way to really understand is to go get in the cockpit. It's one of the sweetest looking jets, one of the most beautiful aircraft out there. Lieutenant Colonel James Flash Frickle has flown the F-16 for 20 years, but he's had his eye on jets for about as long as he can remember. Kindergarten, I wanted to be a farmer, and then uh, first grade, from then on, I wanted to be a pilot. He's the commander of the 466th Fighter Squadron and the pilot taking me up. It's like putting on snow pants. There's a pre-flight briefing. These are some puke bags, but I'll get you a Ziploc. It's a little better. Then, climb into the jet. Pilots say their first flight in the Viper leaves a pretty strong impression. It handles like a dream. It's a sports car. Uh, It's a fighter pilot's dream. For an aviation enthusiast with the childhood dream of flying in a jet like this, It should leave a pretty big impression on me, too. It's hard to describe that feeling. The Viper can take up to 9 Gs, but Flash didn't push it that high. Even so, that initial pull-up really sets the tone. On our way to the operations area, we flew in formation with Danger, another F-16 pilot. Then a couple of new F-35s formed up on our wing. These are the fighter jets taking the place of all the F-16s at Hill Air Force Base. After a couple of minutes of formation flying, those 35s are gone and the maneuvers begin. Flash begins with a hard turn to the left, then a harder one to the right. We were pulling G's our camera, couldn't quite handle. Then we drop to a few hundred feet off the ground, hundreds of miles per hour, and pull straight up. G 
G-suits prevent too much blood from leaving our brains, so we won't pass out during high G maneuvers. After about an hour of demonstrating what the F-16 can do in flight, we head back to Hill Air Force Base. It's hard to process everything happening around you during a flight like that. It's not really until after you're back on the ground that you can start to appreciate what you just experienced. One thing I do know is that bag came back empty. Back on the ground here inside Hill Air Force Base. It was an amazing ride. No puke in the bag, thankfully. Came down with a clean cockpit. We were pretty lucky because that was one of the last two-seat F-16 rides here at Hill Air Force Base. All the F-16s will be done at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico by the end of the month. At Hill Air Force Base, Sean Moody, KSL 5 News. Gosh, uh, Sean, you know, after listening to that, it sounds like you were pretty darn excited. Uh, uh, I, I really, I, I watched the whole video prior to this, and I watched, uh, actually had a couple videos that I watched from your Facebook page, and uh, that was pretty neat. So, so now that we've actually heard a little bit of the excitement in your voice and, and what you've done during that whole, whole journey, tell us a little bit about flying the F-16 and, and compared to the, the last plane that you actually flew. <laughs> it's a little bit faster and a little bit more maneuverable. Um, no, it was it was wild. Uh, the 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 cool thing about that is just for someone who who hasn't been in the flying game as much lately, and all the flying I'm used to is 108 knots in a Skyhawk. Um, you know, going out in that thing, we were out in the Utah Test and Training Range, which is in the West Desert of Utah. Um, they do have some supersonic routes, and so at one point we were supersonic. You know, and everything you know between the speed and the G's and the Earth spinning around, it's one of those things where you really can't process and appreciate everything that's happening in real time. Um, it's just all coming at you so fast that you're just trying to kind of stay ahead of it and and appreciate it while you're uh, in the moment. Um, but the, the, the G's were amazing. I think we got up to about six and a half. Um, the F-16 can take up that high. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we got up off the runway. We didn't do that unrestricted takeoff like you see sometimes because we do have a class, uh, Bravo airport nearby. So we kind of did a little bit easier climb out until we got out away from everything else. And then, uh, he kind of turned it loose. Um, but we did, uh, kind of a, I believe it was a four and a half G turn and then turn around to a five and a half G turn to kind of get me acclimated, um, before we did, uh, you know, kind of getting up to a few hundred, uh, a few hundred knots and then pulling vertical. And the, the cool thing was the G's, I, 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 we never got, uh, so hard that I passed out. Plus I had a G suit on, so that helped as well. Um, but what was cool was with respect to the G's, I only felt them all that dramatically as the pull up was happening. Um, so once you're, once we were vertical and not changing pitch, you don't really, at least I didn't feel the G's all that much. It kind of just became a lot easier ride. You still feel the speed, but you're not getting pushed down in that seat because, you know, your, your pitch is pretty much staying the same at that point. But, um, it was just an absolute, you know, roller coaster doesn't even begin to describe the, the sensations that come with that and, um, brought back an, an empty six sack. So that was, that was a success as far as I was concerned. Well, congratulations. I know when we listen to that video, it, you have to go see it because watching you get squashed in the seat was really cool. Uh, that video camera was actually placed there by the Air Force, or did you pl place that in the aircraft? 
Uh, we placed them. Um, we had a couple. Uh, one of them was on a it was like a clamp with an arm on it, and then the other one they actually had like a little GoPro rail built built in. Um, they had uh, I don't know if they have one or two uh, two seat F16s there, but I think they use them fairly regularly for for that kind of thing. So they had the GoPro mount built in. Um, so I cut together a video from a couple of cameras there, and. Um, yeah, it was just, <laughs> what was frustrating was I couldn't see what I was shooting. So every now and then I was adjusting the camera and just, you know, kind of the, the point and pray, kind of like, I hope that what <laughs> I think is in frame is actually in frame. And it, for the most part, it was, there were a couple of times where, you know, my head was just on the edge of the frame. I'd like to have centered it up a little bit better, but eh, I'll certainly take what we got. Um, and another cool thing about the ride too, we, we talked about how the, uh, the F 16s are being replaced by F 35s there. They actually had some F 35s operating nearby. And, uh, so we actually got to fly in formation with those. There was, uh, initially another F 16 off our wing and then a couple of F 35s came in and I, you know, to be able to be in flight in an F 16 and looking off the wing and seeing an F 35 sitting right there, it was, yeah, something I never would have imagined seeing with my own eyes. And it makes for a great Facebook photo, and I think you should leave that up forever. <laughs> that was like such a yeah, that's totally never cool. coming down. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. As a matter of fact, we'll we'll put it on the, the on the post for this. It it actually is really cool to see that. You know, go, going back to what you were saying about flying the aircraft, I know there's some things that are very unique about this aircraft. Is as a matter of fact, it's like one of the first planes I made a model of as a child. And when I really got into making models, this is in the 70s when they started coming out with this. And uh, it was cool because the first ones like were red, white, and blue. They had like red wings and blue on the top and all. And it was really neat. Uh, they talked about this thing called fly-by-wire. And when I was young, I didn't understand that at all. And, you know, of course, I flew by wire because I had a model airplane. I had a wire attached and I flew it around my room. <laughs> so I'm thinking as a young child, that's what they mean. But it, it totally isn't anything like that. So take us a, a little bit through the, the experience of what this fly-by-wire is and uh, and how they explained it to you and what it, what it felt like if you were able to actually move the controls. I guess you got to move the controls on the ground. Yeah, they had a little mock-up, uh, you know, kind of training how to get in and out of the cockpit um, so that you didn't, you know, fall down the ladder trying to get in. And um, I, I had always heard of the concept fly-by-wire and was kind of familiar with how it worked from a, from a book standpoint, but had never actually in practice felt it. And what shocked me was how little play there was in the stick. Um, it didn't move more than, you know, I wouldn't say more than an inch in any direction. So you just tell it, you know, you, you move the stick wherever you want to go and it just determines how much it's going to give as far as elevator or aileron. And, and, um, it's just amazing, especially this is 1970s technology, uh, that something like that, uh, was able to be developed back then with these, you know, computer sensors saying, well, the pilot's giving this input, how fast are we going? You know, how many G's are we pulling? What can we give the airplane that's not going to bend it? And uh, it was pretty incredible to kind of, you know, kind of put that stick in your hand and just, you know, imagine what it would be like to be going hundreds of miles an hour and, and pull that thing. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible technology, especially considering when it was developed. Interestingly, I actually fly the first uh, fly-by-wire, you know, Airbus and uh, aircraft. And what, what's amazing is, and you just said it, you, you move it slightly. Now, with the Airbus, we can move a little bit more than I think you were doing as far as, you know, maybe an inch or two each way. But it really doesn't take much at all. As a matter of fact, if you slam it to the stop, quote-unquote stop, uh, it'll actually 
interject and say, hey, wait a minute, guys, uh, you're going to overstress us, and we don't like that. So we're going to slow that down a bit. So we're not going to really push it all the way over, especially in an Airbus. But with the with the F-16, uh, I've heard, and I do this myself, you can actually use your, your finger and, and fly the aircraft. I actually can do that with the, the Airbus, which is quite amazing. I don't, I don't know if they ever they demonstrated that, but it, it's just so light on the controls, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it it felt, you know, being in the back seat uh, as they were climbing out, just like it was on rails. I mean, it, it just it was the smoothest ride I've ever had in an airplane. Um, and it was it was late July, um, so you know, you you wonder if you're going to get a little bit of bumpiness and thermals and that kind of thing. And if there were any, I didn't feel it. We sliced right through them, maybe, but uh, it was it absolutely just did feel like it was on rails. I never felt. You know, none of the outside of the the you know the the rolls and the hard turns. Um, it, nothing the pilot was doing felt like it was you know uh, abrupt or jerky. It was just the smoothest ride. You know, and I'm sure a lot of kudos go to the the, the pilot as well, not just the airplane, but uh, the Lieutenant Colonel uh, Flash who was flying me was you know between the airplane and and the the guy up front, it was just a, a dream ride. So before we go into the, the, the a little more history as far as the aircraft and also some more questions, uh, just so people understand that are listening, this fly-by-wire technology, uh, there's basically a computer between the control that you're holding, which is a side stick in the F-16, the same thing in the Airbus, and the it's a it's basically like a rheostat, and you actually move the stick, and then it sends a command to the computer. The computer then tells the flight controls what to do. There is no other than a wire. There is no physical attachment to the flight controls from the actual side stick, and that's pretty darn wild for a lot of pilots out there to realize that there is no way to physically control that aircraft except through the computers on board. So you really want to make sure all the computers are working, and that's why it's so much tougher to get moving on an aircraft and get started right away on an aircraft that has all these computers involved. You know, another aircraft that just has physical controls, it's easy. You jump in, and you just go fly. So uh, so if you've ever had that experience to be able to get into a simulator and see what fly-by-wire is like, it's really cool. It prevents you from overstressing the aircraft. It prevents you from stalling the aircraft. It does a lot for you. That That is for you. Uh, that is, that is just, just amazing to have something like that. I know aircraft are trying to go that way more with general aviation, but uh, there's be a little bit too much to put that in an aircraft. I know they have some other things that do help us out, like uh, trying to, you know, recover from unusual attitudes that type of thing uh but i know but before we go on to the you know uh, some of the questions i know we have a lot of them the the reason though and let's stress this because we want to make sure we get this correct uh the f-16 is is leaving hill air force base but it's not it's not leaving uh the air force at all and it's actually been pushed off i think till 2048 i think they said they're going to continue to actually support it and it's also going to be sold worldwide so Tell us again what what is that? What do they call that flight again when when it leaves an a uh, an air force base? Yeah, they called this the um, the Viper out. Um, so if you're familiar with the F sixteen, you know the official designation is the Fighting Falcon, but most of the pilots call it the Viper. Uh, my understanding is that um, it was delivered without an official name, and the pilots all thought it looked like a snake, so they just called it the Viper. And then Fighting Falcon came ahead, came along, but they never called it that. 
Um, so they've got this Viper out ceremony, and, and they actually uh, transitioned. They're all gone from Hill now as far as the, the fighter squadrons there. Um, they left in September. But um, they actually uh, moved from Hill Air Force Base down to Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. And one of the things that's interesting about Hill is they also have a, uh, a big maintenance depot there. And so there will still be F-16s coming in and out of the base. They just won't be based there, but they'll still come in to get work done on them. Um, all different aircraft from all across the uh, all branches. It's cool, you know, even though they won't live here anymore like they have since 1979, uh, the people who are used to seeing him overhead will still get to see him from time to time. Sean, that's so cool. Um, so I've, I've always wanted to, uh, do the same thing you did is get into an F-16 and the closest I've gotten is to, uh, actually fly with a couple of guys who, um, were F-16 pilots and I just bombarded them full of questions. And two of the things that I, I, heard about the F-16 that, that were quite interesting to me were, first of all, it's visibility. When you're sitting in the cockpit, how much you can see out of that canopy, and that's what's one of the things it's known for. And the other thing that I want to know about is, like, uh, what was it like landing? Because uh, I think the two pilots I talked to said it was try like trying to land a cinder block with wings. <laughs> um, I, you know, I... It was a sturdy, a firm landing. I can say that if you if you look at the video, you can see the uh, the little tire puffs, and you can see the uh, the wingtip vortices kind of curl them around. Um, but it wasn't a hard landing. Uh, it was it was firm, um, and it, it you know I was also <laughs> that was of course the end of the flight where I was starting to starting to not see straight anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it they they handled it masterfully. Um, so, you know, all I could kind of speak to is, is the way I felt with them, uh, them in control and, and totally felt, uh, in control to me and, and smooth as could be. And then just a, a you know, nice firm planning of the mains on the runway. Um, uh, and the visibility really was, uh, so I've never, I'm racking my brain right now. I, I've, I've flown in an RV once an RV 12. That's the only time I've ever flown an airplane that had kind of a, kind of a bubble. Um, and so to go from flying mainly a high wing 172, and having, you know, you could look down and see the ground really easily and look forward uh, and to the side, but you couldn't see around all that well. So to go from that to being in the canopy of the F-16 was uh, was something I've, you know, never have experienced before. And it was amazing. And, of course, the maneuverability, you know, rolling over and then looking down next to you and you can see just all this expanse of the Utah desert uh, out beneath you. Um, yeah, if, if I could uh, fly in something like that every day and have views like that every day, I would be a happy man. We'll try to get you a job at the Air Force Base so you can actually go do that quite often, especially maybe test flying some of the aircraft because they're coming there for, for maintenance. Uh, hey, there you go. I, I'm, I'm, hey, I may be coming in a bit too late for that, but uh, if there's a way, I'll take it. But, uh, you know, that that is awesome, though. It's I'm glad to hear that they're coming back for the maintenance flights, et cetera. And, uh, you know, Tom, you pointed out that it kind of lands like a brick and and they have quote unquote solid landings. That's something that uh, is different. You know, you have to stick it right on the point with the with the uh, any in the military and also in the in the airlines, et cetera. But uh, really, the important part is to get it right in the spot on the runway. It's uh, not so much uh, greasing it on every time. That's that's for darn sure. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of came to mind, you know, when when Tom was talking, is the fact that. You know, these guys go through all this training, and do they, they mention how long some of those folks had been there and how long it takes them to, to really get to this point of being able to fly such a fighter? 
the ones that they paired me up with were some of the higher rankings. So they'd been in 20 years or so. Um, they were, you know, squadron commanders. So I, I was lucky. I mean, I got to fly with some pretty impressive uh, people up front, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but yeah, they had been in, um, I believe, both of them around 20 years. I, I flew with one and, and was, you know, interviewing with another one. I keep saying them. Um, but uh, they. I'm trying to remember how long it took them to get through all the training. Um, and I don't know that I know the answer to that specifically. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wish I could remember an exact number on, on how long I would guess, you know, I, I would guess a year, year and a half or so, but, uh, but that's just a guess. Which I know is just a couple hundred hours in some cases of actual flying time that they actually get to solo a fighter, which is kind of cool, which is, it was really, really awesome. But, uh, yeah. you know, Vic, I know you had a few more questions for, for Sean. Yeah, I was glad you asked about the pilots. I was kind of curious how when you went flying, you know, was it more of a professional relationship or are they going to, were they like, hey, we're going to have fun with this newbie in the back? <laughs> um, I think they, you know, they, they didn't want to, uh, they, they wanted to give me as much as I wanted, I think. Um, so they didn't want to give me a bad ride, but if I wanted them to push it a little bit harder, they would have. Um the the cool thing was uh, this was a a flight kind of for this story and um, so they were kind of like well what would you like to do and um, and so that was cool you know there were a couple of different options one of them was going to be uh, potentially a refueling flights so we would have pretty much stuck right to the to the mission plan for that one this one was more of a let's just go on up go out to the uh, the test and training range and just show what the airplane can do. Um, so, you know, while it would have been really cool to, to see a refueling mission from inside the, uh, the jet, I was thankful that it ended up being a flight where it was just, you know, kind of, um, let's just take an hour, go out and show you what this thing does. And, um, and he, he, I, I felt bad. I'll, I'll admit this here that, um, as we were kind of approaching the end of the flight, uh, a couple of times, um, the, the pilot flashed, he offered, he was like, well, you want to, you know, we could do a few more loops, a few more rolls, uh, you know, we can head on back. And at that point my body was feeling it and I hadn't gotten sick. And I said, you know, your cockpit is still clean and I feel like I don't want to get it dirty. So <laughs> we should probably head on back in. And I, I got just over an hour of, uh, of time in the cockpit, which, you know, I, I could never ask for anything more than that. So yeah, we might've gotten a few more minutes. Uh, but I, I feel like they, it would have pushed me over the edge if we'd uh, done much else. Do you think your experience uh, of being a pilot kind of gave you more appreciation for this than anyone else who would have flown it? I think so. Um, you know, knowing what it, it means to me, I mean, being in a, in a fighter jet would have been a dream of mine. You know, military wasn't really a, a route that, um, that would have worked well for me. And so, you know, I wasn't ever going to be a fighter pilot. So to have the dream of being in a jet and have people I work with who kind of recognize that that was going to mean that much to me and, and to, you know, kind of talk with some of the pilots beforehand. I, I had talked to a couple of them um, when we did interviews on base before the day we flew. So I'd already built up a little bit of a rapport with them. Um, and that, you know, it's kind of, they were familiar with my aviation background, so they kind of knew what it would mean to me. And so I, I think that they, you know, I, I think they enjoyed the opportunity to kind of be part of that as well. You know, they get to fly those things all the time, but it's not too often that they get to share it with somebody new. So, you know, I, I like to think that it was fun for them too. Excellent. Um, any any takeaways, like surprises, something that shocked you 
unexpected about the whole experience? Um, I, I, I fully expected to pass out and puke. <laughs> and neither of those two things happened. Um, you know, the, the pilots told me that it's when it comes to getting sick, it's about 50-50, they said. Um, you know, so that I, I was prepared and it would have been absolutely worth it either way. Um, you know, I think one of the things that shocked me was just how absolutely rock solid smooth the thing was at, you know, at any speed, any attitude. Um, it's, it was just so smooth and felt like the thing was just on a track going through the sky. Um, you know, that, and then, you know, just the, the sheer visuals were unbelievable. I mean, I don't know if how many of our listeners live in Utah or have ever visited Utah. It's not a state I knew much about before I moved here, but it's a beautiful state. And to fly over it, you know, a few thousand feet above it or, you know, a few hundred feet above it in this training area, um, those visuals are something that I will never, ever forget. One of the things that is really neat about the airbase there, and we really appreciate everybody at Hill Air Force Base. I mean, the, it is huge. The amount of people that have to be placed there to keep this ball rolling, to keep maintenance there, to keep these birds flying. F-35s, it said, you, it's, a, it's a busy place. I don't know if you, what it was like when you drove on the base, but I'm, I'm sure it's, it, to me, it's always exciting to see. And it's, it's a buzz of activity. So tell us a little bit about that, Sean. I mean, what was your experience just coming into the Air Force base? Yeah, it's, um, like you said, it's a really busy place. They've got uh, a couple of fighter wings. They've got the air logistics complex, and they've got a, uh, an air wing that handles the testing and training range. Um, so it's, it's a city up there and, and, you know, a lot of the economic, you know, activities there contribute to the, to the greater area. Um, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how many people they employ, but it's many thousands of people, uh, from the local area. So that base is, is huge. Um, I remember, you know, I had lunch one of the days I was up there at the, uh, little PX. I say little, I mean, it's like a shopping mall. You would think you were in the, you know, I, I try to imagine what it would have been like if you had been on a base in a foreign country and walked into one of these places. And it's like you're walking into any any mall in America. Um, and there are so many different things happening there. I mentioned the um, you know you've got the fighter wings, and then you've got the the um, logistics complex, which handles A uh, tens, C one thirties, F twenty twos. I think it's it's such a neat mix of uh, of airplanes all around there. Um, and it's, it's, you know, everybody's busy doing their thing. And it's just neat sometimes when you're riding through just to kind of look around and, and appreciate all the work that everybody's doing up there. And, you know, also recognize that you, you, when you get an experience like this, you almost feel a little bit of guilt because you know that most of the people who work there every day uh, would love to be able to have an experience like that. And, and, and they don't get to do it. And just I just happen to be lucky enough to be in the profession that, you know, gets to do that thing from time to time. Um, when I, uh, posted the story, um, someone was talking about like, well, the people that, you know, work on these don't get to fly. And I said, well, I, I recognize that and I appreciate what they do. And I just hope I had enough fun for them too, while I was up there. Uh, that's very well said. I tell you, one of the things that really impresses me about Hill, I know a little bit about it because, uh, 
actually my father-in-law was a chief master sergeant there and he actually was in charge of the the museum at at one point uh they actually are in charge of over a million acres they oversee i should say over a million acres and with that there's over 21,000 people that they actually employ both within the military and outside the military and uh, there's a couple fighter wings there uh active duty the, the was it 419th is out there and it's phenomenal what they the impact they have on the local community and the people all throughout Utah and my hats off to those folks they actually were recently uh, like you said i think they were deployed the F35s were just deployed i think uh within the past week out of hill and that's that, right. Yeah, they're in the Pacific now. And that's okay. So they're in the Pacific now. Great. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what's really cool is actually following them. And if you ever get a chance, I don't know if they, they mentioned this, but what a phenomenal museum that they have there. Did you get a chance to actually go and check it out? I've been there. Yeah. Um, wasn't wasn't during all this, but actually a few months earlier, um, took some time, drove up. It's at the north end of the base, and uh, and it's it's incredible. It's you know I've been to Wright Patterson, so. You know, it's it's hard to compare to that one, but this is you know easily second best as far as I'm concerned. Um, just gorgeous, and I saw on Facebook yesterday they just got a Thunderbird F-16 in that they're working on, um, and it's you know like 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 Wright Patterson, it's free admission. So if you're in the area, I highly highly recommend uh, going up there and checking it out. And you were talking, Carl, about kind of the the economic impact of the base. One of the interesting things they're doing right now is uh, they're calling it a mixed use lease. So they're bringing in, um, leasing out area of the base that's underutilized as far as the Air Force is concerned. They're leasing it to, um, in some cases, contractors that do aerospace, that kind of thing, and letting them kind of build on the base land to create their own, you know, whatever it is they do. And then they let the Air Force use some of the office space in there. So they're replacing some of those old, they had these like 1940s munitions hangars that are now converted into office space. And so they're trying to modernize a lot of this stuff. And um, they've been trying it, I think, in bases across the country. And, and they're doing a whole lot of it at Hill right now where they'll you know, find some of that underutilized land, let a contractor come in and build a building, let the Air Force use some of that office space, and then bring in um, aerospace contractors that are now working you know, right there alongside the people who are flying the airplanes instead of being in some other state somewhere. So they're talking about how it kind of streamlines the operation too. So it's interesting to kind of watch how the economics change around the base as we go into the future. And within the museum, they actually go through some of that. I'm not sure they have the most current, but all the, you know, the beginnings of the base and all throughout the different wars and uh, talks about the Air Force in general. But but what's really cool is is the impact that it's having, but also, uh, and you're seeing this throughout the country, the the joint use we're seeing with these bases and uh, civilian businesses, and it is absolutely phenomenal. I, and I, I'm glad because it keeps the base open. It also contributes incredibly to the local community. Uh, if you ever get a chance, though, you got to see the museum. If you're in Utah, there's some beautiful places within Utah. But one thing that strikes me when I walk into any of the Air Force museums, uh, <laughs> you can eat off the floor, it seems. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. You can see that they put a lot of 
money, effort, and they have a lot of pride in what they do in these museums. And within the Utah Museum, uh, if you get a chance, check out like the, they actually have the Utah Aviation Hall of Fame is is actually housed within there. Uh, so they do partner up with other organizations. They have the Women Air Force Service Pilots Exhibit that's just amazing and uh just really neat things through the jet age and explaining the f-16 of course they can explain that very well because it's there but i also like the fact that when i went in there i almost felt like i was in a you know like one of those disney type exhibits where it was it made me feel like i was actually at at an operating airfield in certain parts of it uh and you know hats off to the military for actually doing that and being being out there and and keeping history alive through through these museums and also contributing to our local society so if you if you get a chance gosh you really got to go there it's it's a really really cool place and uh and the price is actually really cheap uh i think it's actually free from what i remember and uh you know of course a lot of these are are free we've paid through i guess through our taxes but it's a wonderful wonderful exhibit i think everybody should see you know getting back to to what you said there on the F-35, uh, I think one of the things that we're going to need to do is get an update on that. And uh, I was wondering, Sean, would you be willing to maybe do a flight in an F-35 for us so we can actually report, <laughs> report back to the Stuck Mike Avcast on that? The, the day they build a two-seat F-35 and let a reporter in the back seat, I will be all about it. <laughs> well, let, let's that's hope the they thing. do that. Yeah, there's no yeah, two-seaters. Yeah, right now they're all single seat. Um, and that's the other thing interesting, too. The first solo flight uh, or the you know the first flight for any of these F-35 pilots is is their their first solo because there's not any two seat 35s um so yeah one day maybe we'll we'll see (laughs) (laughs) well one day you actually one of the cool things about where you are right now sean is i think it's wonderful you're at hill but there is so much there i mean so many air you know air bases and also there's so much civilian flying that goes on where you are i mean you have uh, right there was it uh, Wendover was out that way, and you also have uh, some of the other uh, air. Uh, what's the one that goes over the hill that I'm trying to think? Uh, oh gosh, and now I can't remember. But it's it's a beautiful uh, air. Uh, that's uh, civilian field, it, I should say. Is it Heber City? Yeah, that's it, Heber City. Thank you so Heber much. City, yeah. What a what a pretty little town. I remember mm-hmm. uh, just driving up through the hills into Heber City, and there's a couple aerobatic teams that actually house there. Uh, have you had a chance to get out to some of these different uh, general aviation fields within that area? Uh, I've been to a couple. Um, there's one down in Spanish Fork, uh, which is south of here in Utah County, um, and there's some incredible general aviation and experimental aviation happening there. Um, you, there was a, a story I did about a, a forced landing in a field with one of the pilots who was based out of there, and um, you know, you you show up for the for the forced landing coverage, and thankfully the pilot came out. You know, he he put it down beautifully, walked away, did a great job. And in, in covering that story, you, you learn about the community down there and, uh, they just have some unbelievable, you know, cool stuff going on in there. So I'm hoping to do some, some more stories about the, the, uh, experimental aviation that's happening down there. So stay tuned on that one. Definitely will. And, uh, Spanish Fork actually has a little special place in my heart. My, the first, uh, Czech airman I ever had in a jet was actually uh, from Spanish Fork. And, uh, I spent some time actually flying out of, uh, 
out of Utah and out of Salt Lake City. What a beautiful place to fly. And uh, the terrain, it changes, it's dramatic, and the colors are just wonderful. Uh, I think you were talking before, it's a wonderful place to visit. You can go up into the hills and hike around and then be down in the valley and, and having a whole different weather system, actually, walking down and into these different airfields. It's, it's really phenomenal, I think. It really is. I, I came out here. I had a couple of buddies who lived here, and I knew nothing about Utah. And uh, getting out here, driving around it, flying above it, it's just gorgeous. Like you mentioned, it's, the city itself, Salt Lake City, is right up against the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains, and it's just just gorgeous. Um, you know, Within 10 minutes, you can be from downtown up hiking in the foothills. Uh, you know, 40 minutes, you can be up in the canyons at the, at the world-famous ski resorts. Uh, you know, 45 minutes up to Park City. Um, yeah, if you're if you're looking to go somewhere pretty, go uh, go check out Utah. Give me a shout. And some of the really cool things to do there is not just you know airplanes, but also sailplanes. There's some of the really long sailplane flights that have happened over the Wasatch Mountains, uh, especially out of Heber and over that whole area there. You can look it up on YouTube. I've seen like two hour flights over that area. It's absolutely stunning. So. Uh, uh, I'm I'm just so jealous that you've actually made it out there to to Utah, but I am going to take you up on the on uh, heading out and doing some GA flying yeah. sometime. And absolutely, uh, it has its challenges though with all the hills, uh, especially you know in a 172, etc. So yeah. you really, um, I know there's a lot more challenges, especially compared to say where I am in Florida, uh, IFR flying. You know, just yeah, a lot of times it's it the hills and also icing, right? Icing and, and just the, the elevation, um, you know, I learned to fly in, in Lexington, Kentucky and Jacksonville, Florida, uh, two places that are not very high elevation. So density altitude and things like that were always pretty much just theoretical to me. It wasn't anything that ever really stopped me from going flying. And I haven't, I haven't done uh, much in the way of flying here yet since I've been here. But I understand there, you know, there are days where it's just it's that hot in the summertime combined with the elevation that, you know, for a couple hours in the afternoon, you're not going up. Well, speaking of going up, um, now that you've flown the F-16, what's next? I mean, what's next in, in, in Sean <laughs> Moody's aviation adventures? Because it's really cool watching you on Facebook. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun living it. Uh, you know, I, I, on the GA side, I'd love to, to get a little more active in uh, training for the CFI and, and kind of doing a little more regular flying. On the, on the work side, Hill Air Force Base has an air show every two years. I moved here in one of the off years, so I uh, expect to have one next summer. And, you know, hey, if, if, uh, if a jet team uh, decides to come on out, you know, obviously we're an Air Force base, uh, but I think the Blue Angels also come from time to time. Um, if I can find my way back into the backseat of a fighter jet again, it might seem unfair to the people who haven't been in one, but I'll still, <laughs> I'll still put my, uh, my name in the hat for that. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that's uh, actually really exciting to have you there. So maybe uh, possibly we could maybe hear some more reporting on the Stuck Mike Avcast. I know you have your regular job with the, the media there, and uh, and you do a great job out there. I think that's really cool. Plus, it's cool to have somebody within the media that uh, understands the difference between a 747 <laughs> and a Piper Cub. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you watch stories about aviation, you're like, oh, no, no, no. The engine didn't stall. Um, so... <laughs> I try and be one of the good reporters. Um, so yeah, uh, but I, I share the uh, 
cringing when you hear someone report on aviation who's not familiar with it. Yeah, and, then, and there's a lot of cringing that goes on, but I understand, uh, and it's great to have a resource like you that's inside. What's really cool is that there are a lot of reporters that actually do have some experience flying, and it's neat to hear from them and uh, the fact that they actually know a little bit about the aviation world. Uh, and it's really, what's, what's exciting, too, is the fact that they're, you know, like yourself, you're paying it forward, you're coming onto podcasts like this and talking about your experiences flying the F-16 and the different things that you you're doing in the aviation world i think that's that's really really cool well gosh you know this is a most of what we have time wise and but before we go just uh tell us a little bit about how we might be able to get in touch with you and also uh i'll have some of the videos uh on our website uh but if they want to follow what you're doing in the media etc we do have to give a shout out to the folks that you work for because they put this all together yeah, um, if you, you look at my Facebook page, it's uh, it's pretty easy. It's just Sean Moody, S-E-A-N-M-O-O-D-Y. I think it's a picture of me in a suit with a red tie. Um, and then Twitter. Um, there's the one that I've used for – I actually, I'm not very active on it anymore, but my, my aviation one was always Aviation. It's A-V-I-A-S-E-A-N. Uh, but you can also look for me at uh, Sean Moody KSL. Uh, KSL is the station that I uh, report for. Um, so either of those two places – uh, connect with me there. Uh, if you're in the area, shoot me story ideas. Uh, still being new to the area, I always appreciate it when I can uh, get somebody that, that kind of feeds me uh, some stories. Um, but yeah, and if anyone who listens happens to be in the Utah area, um, yeah, look me up. Well, I tell you what, I think it's, it's a great idea for you to report on the, the next air show. I think they call it the Wings Over, or excuse me, Warriors Over the Wasatch, I think it's called. I think that's it, and, yeah. And uh, it comes up, it's usually in June, and uh, it's a really cool show, and they have a lot of people that show up. Maybe the two of us can uh, can actually go out there and report together. That, that There you go. There's something we need to, to promise the listeners, that we'll head on out there together and report live, say, from the uh, hey, Warriors of I'm the Wasatch. In. All right, cool. I'm and you to- know what it would be? It would be the first time that I've ever met any of you all in person. Uh, wow, that is true. That Oh, my gosh, that's true. Insane. <laughs> Isn't it? It is insane. This world yeah. of electronics is just phenomenal. I got to meet Victoria, of course, and and uh, you know my first experience with her was something else. Hey, Carl, grab these chairs. You know, get to work. <laughs> but uh, we that's what you get for coming to me. If yeah. I visit you, it's the other way around. <laughs> we will, and Sean would promise we won't do that to you if we come out there. But uh, right. I mean, it's 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 worth it. I'll do whatever you guys need. I'll come on out, do some hiking, some skiing, some flying. We'll do it all. Our next episode is 153, When a Career and Passion Come Together. This is awesome. This was with uh, Tom Frick, had a great idea about this, and we talk a little bit about how putting your career and your passion together is wonderful, more from a a general aviation perspective and a, a general life perspective. So let's listen to that one. Let's start off with the first one. Like I said, if it's a comment, please send it to us, etc. First one comes in and says, I'm an Italian-born private pilot currently living in the Czech Republic, right in the heart of Europe. First of all, I want to let you know how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. I first listened to one of the episodes while going on a jog a month ago, and now I'm completely absorbed by the great choice of topics and useful discussion. Great work. I've been passionate about aviation ever since I can remember, and three years ago I was able to get my single-engine pilot license flying mostly 172s. Here in Central Europe, I work a busy job in financial technologies, but whenever I work and weather allow, I love taking to the skies with family and friends. 
There's a question I wanted to bring to you, Carl, and the co-host of Stuck Mike, and it has to do with the passion for aviation we all share. Since I first started flying, I've been tempted to venture in some sort of aviation-related business, but always wondered if this could spoil the joys of flying as a private pilot. How much of the dream fades away once tight schedules, long nights, and financial pressures come into the picture? This is a really cool, cool uh, uh, question. I really like this. Uh, but anyway, he continues. Given your experience as CFIs and professional pilots, I'm very interested in, in your view on this point. Please keep up the great work, and I'll be looking forward to listening to the next episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Well, thanks so much. So we, we have a real gambit here. This is what's, what's so neat about the podcast. We have people that are working in all different parts of the industry. You know, I, I've been working for quite some time, uh, f- since 1999, actually, as a professional pilot, working for the airlines. And uh, does it spoil it for me? And I've been doing it a while now. I still have a passion for aviation. I have a passion for general aviation. Uh, does it get old and tiresome sometimes yeah I'll, I'll admit it does there are times when uh you see the same airport over and over and over again and uh you know no matter how many times you land at that that airport down in in st martin it uh it is exciting to see uh, obviously right now it's pretty tough they're not going to be open that airport for a while but it is it is still pretty cool the people you meet and the things that you get to see are really what get to be exciting um and then it wanes. It does go. It's like anything else in life. It goes up. It goes down. What's interesting is I know Victoria. I'd like you to really weigh in on this because you're involved in aviation and you still have a passion for it. But you've got you've become involved in uh, another side of aviation. It's not particularly flying, but you do really enjoy the flying side. But the two commingle, and there's no real way to pull them apart. But you've been doing it a while, and, and I'm wondering, are you still passionate about aviation? I am extremely passionate. I think my type of passion has changed. But um, I really liked that this question was brought up because previously to me deciding, oh, wait, I can be a pilot for a career, um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I loved working with animals and being with animals. But after working with dogs for 10 years at a groom shop... I realized that I could enjoy animals without having to do it for a living. Um, Actually, working at that groom shop made me change my mind about working with animals for a living. And it did kind of ruin the passion for me. Um, Obviously, I still have the passion for animals today um, by what I do um, in my spare time. But the same thing happened when I was on my route becoming a commercial pilot thinking I'm going to fly for a living when I landed a job in aircraft insurance. It was just meant to be temporary, but it gave me the time to sit down and think about, you know, here's an opportunity for a really good career. Will the same thing happen to me again if I wanted to fly for a living? Would I still have as much fun with being told where to go? Maybe I didn't feel like flying, but I had to go do it because it was my career. And so after lots of contemplation, you know, I decided to stay in aviation and insurance and not greatly pursue uh, commercial aviation. And I think the joy and the passion is just kind of different now. I, I get to fly for fun, but I still get to talk to pilots every day. I get to hear about the newest, latest aircraft. I, I got to hear about basic med and be really keep up on that. So I'm right at the forefront of all the new things that are happening without actually having to fly 
if that makes any sense whatsoever. But you do still do some flying on your own, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I always tell the pilots who call in um, for insurance, you know, yeah, I talk to you during during the week. I get to talk to pilots, but on the weekend, I am a pilot. And you have this this connection to the aviation industry, which is really cool, but in, in a different view. So I, I think the important thing when we're looking at your career is the fact that you still get involved and you still love aviation and it's changed over time and all of ours has changed our passion changes and then and how we look at the career changes because new things come about but it's really cool that you're actually still part of it because if you went into some other type of insurance you probably wouldn't be really involved on a daily basis you're involved on a daily basis both as your hobby and as your business and you're still passionate about it which i think is really cool uh and it's great to see some people are like that because there are people that just totally lose it and they're like i i, I hate a- aviation i hate flying i don't ever want to see an airport again and it's sad but it happens it's uh, a very sad person yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, makes me sad it, and i unfortunately it happens you know i see it at work every so often and there's no stereotypical group but uh you know i was with somebody who used to fly f-18s and now he's not real happy flying an airbus because he doesn't get to go upside down i said well with the money you're making flying the airbus why don't you buy an airplane that goes upside down (laughs) (laughs) problem solved right there um but yeah i I think that's great victoria i also want to hear from some of the cfis in the group here that are professional cfis and i know uh russ works uh you know we don't really talk about your employer but russ you work in aviation as a full-time job but there's uh the gosh it seems like you're working full-time as a cfi you're doing this really part-time but you're very 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 active as a cfi so let me ask you this have have you lost that loving feeling or are you still still into this (laughs) (laughs) no i have not lost that love and feeling carl Uh, i I still absolutely love aviation and and everything about it what i think for me has changed is i've been flying for about 24 years now and about the first oh 18 or 19 was just as a hobby pilot, like, like most of us, you know, I didn't have any career aspirations or anything. I just like to fly like our, uh, listener does. And so I would go to the, uh, you know, pancake breakfasts and the fly in lunches and all that kind of stuff. And I've noticed that, you know, since I became a CFI, I don't really do that much of that kind of thing anymore. Uh, I fly a lot more, <laughs> certainly, and, and I'm getting paid to do it, which is great. And I really enjoy teaching too. So it's not that I've lost the you know the joy of of flying or anything. It's just changed, kind of changed forms for me. And and it's it's also a, a perfectly great way. And and I love doing what I do. So uh, has have I have I lost that? No, I don't think so. It's just changed a lot. Like I said. Wow, it, it seems like there's a common theme here, is that our our passion has changed, and, and again, it's through experiences, and that's true with with anything in life. But that's cool. That's that's awesome. I know um, uh, Tom had totally just changed careers, and now he's full bore flight instructing. Uh, gave up his old job, and Tom, I'm wondering, you know, how about you? I mean, now you're into it. I, I can't remember how many years now, and uh, are you still really enjoying it? Yeah, it's been, I don't know, since, since I've made it a career, it's been uh, two or three years now. Um, and it was, uh, it was a conscious decision to do that. Um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to become, when, when I learned how to fly, I, I decided then that I wanted to become a flight instructor as kind of a retirement uh, gig. Um, but my career ended before I wanted it to. 
and um, I was too young to retire. So, and that's what I did is I, I started doing this full time and I too, I, I have not lost the passion for this and, and, uh, it's, it's been awesome. I learn new things every day. Um, it has also changed for me as time goes on. I'm, I'm working as a full-time flight instructor. I also on the side do some, uh, charter work as well. And, uh, that's been a different aspect of flying lately that, uh, has been, um, rewarding and challenging all at the same time, but, but the passion for it is still there. Um. I have a I have a picture or a, it's a box that I found uh, in a little curio store one time and it says uh, it's a beautiful thing when a career and a passion come together and and that hangs over my desk because that's indeed what happened and I tell people that you know I mean I don't go to work anymore I show up someplace and they pay me to do what I love to do and and that's that's the difference with uh, what I was doing before I worked before because I had to I work now because I want to and and that's uh, what aviation has done for me and I love it. That's awesome. I want to. I want to see a picture of that. You got to send that to me. It's uh, that's really cool. I I want to get that for for near my desk. I, it what's kind of interesting. I just had someone that reached out to me recently. I hadn't seen her in like thirty years, and and uh, said, "Boy, I'm glad you're now finally doing something you're passionate about." And it does truly change things. It really does when you're doing something you're passionate about, and you go to work every day, and you're and you're loving it. Um, you know, really another interesting thing about like with Rick is the fact that he's he's not really in aviation, but every so often it intersects. Uh, and I know, wasn't that long ago that you were able to use your talents to help an aviation company? Uh, I think it was in Southwest Florida. And uh, so so you, you still have that incredible passion for aviation, obviously, and you're not in it all the time, but every so often it does intersect in, in your world, in your job. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it does every so often, not not all that often it is a, it is pretty much more discreet than you guys and there's really not a lot of pressure from a business side but i i had a question because i th- this sort of relates to the idea of uh the fun of flying versus the career of flying and it's from it's because i i have a friend that i got re- reconnected with a friend from high school who i briefly got reconnected with on the phone who um who turns out who turns out but in the gap of time we talked became a um you know, is now a captain, a pretty senior captain for an airline. And, um, and I, at the time when we were talking, it was learning, you know, it was learning to fly or I just got my license. So I was all full of the, you know, small plane bouncing around fun stuff and asked him if he flew much. And he, generally his answer, and I think I've talked about this in the show before was no, I don't fly little, little planes right now because I'm, a, I'm, I'm, my career matters too much. And I'm nervous that I don't want to put my career in jeopardy. Do you know what I mean? Carl? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not not asking you, but I'm saying that issue of, and and if you look at that, it's it's the fun of flying kind of, the fun of flying little planes had to go away for him. For And and that might be an interesting thing to, to, you know, another thing for people to think about that it maybe changes what you're able to do based on considerations you have to make, especially if it becomes a, a major career. Yeah, because you don't want to lose your license, and you think yeah, about that exactly. all the time. You think about that right. every time you go to work too, uh, right. because you know sometimes you're asked to do things that you you shouldn't do, etc. But uh, that's a great point, Rick. Though because I, I, he couldn't risk losing it because because it now mattered too much to his family. You so know, there was it was he he didn't want to put that in jeopardy, so he he doesn't. <laughs> 
and I think he misses it. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's just a, a side note on this topic. I think. But but that's a really important note because there there's two ways of looking at that. I and I find people they either go out and they fly general aviation aircraft and they don't worry so much about it and they are incredibly careful while they're flying GA. Uh, and then there's the others that say I will never go near a general aviation aircraft and if I do, I'm not going to be the pilot in command. I'm going to have somebody else I fly with go with me. Um, so you definitely have two. It seems like there's two sides of that. I'm on the side of I go out and I fly, uh, yeah. and I'm very careful. And I do I go up with instructors a lot. If I don't know an area, I fly with them. Uh, but I understand because if if you lose your license and you lose your career, and that's yeah. that could really change things dramatically, especially as you get more senior and you make more yeah. money. It's exactly, it, it and I think that's the point. position he found himself in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and anyway. that and that's that's a that's interesting. And oh, and by the way, this is I have a whole other podcast. This is where we talk about, and that's aviationcareerspodcast.com. But but this is kind of cool because this is more a general aviation uh, venue, and I think it's important that we realize that there are two totally different sides of things. There's people who have never actually flown an airplane and and did it for fun. They've only been paid to fly airplanes. And I fly with a lot of folks like that. From day one, that's all they did, and especially the, the folks that were in the military. And some of them really didn't have that passion. They said, well, let me just give it a try, see if it works out. And and it has. So most of us, though, do it as a – it's a real passion for us. But we also, when it is a passion, we tend to go into it as a career. And then also we're so, so scared. I, I know people tell me they, they can't believe they actually fly GA. You know, why would you ever do such a thing and, and put your career at risk? Well, we also put our career at risk at work. I know, I understand. There's there's some protections we have at work that we don't have in the general aviation world. So, um, but a wonderful, wonderful point that you brought up there. Uh, but anyway, there that's actually a great question, and I'm glad we answered it here on Stuck Mike Avcast. And I know some of those folks that are listening uh, do listen to the other podcast, and uh, you know the folks that are floating around uh, in. Uh, the aircraft carriers right now. We appreciate what you're doing. I know a lot of folks are listening now uh, that are on out there serving our country. We appreciate your service. I'm wondering what uh, what those folks feel. I mean, they they actually been doing it for a living, and uh, you know, looking to get into the airlines. And you know, are they are they worried about the same thing, uh, losing their passion? So I'd love to hear some feedback on that one. So great question. Uh, we appreciate it. And I know you made a comment that you're not a a native. English speaker, uh, but uh, you know we we <laughs> you, it was a spot on question. And by the way, uh, it was great what you wrote to us. So ch- you know, cheers, uh, you know, or ciao, Tivadiano. We'll, we'll talk to you again next episode on that uh, topic. Hopefully, you'll f- uh, give us some more feedback. Uh, anyway, moving on, let's go on to the next question here. I want to make sure we try to get through as many of these as we can. Um, Next one actually is uh, just a quick uh, comment. He says, thank you for helping me to keep my commutes lively and entertaining with you and your cohorts always producing great podcasts. As an, an inspiring future private pilot, your services are well received. Well, I really, really appreciate that. That was, that was awesome. And I'm glad we're making uh, 
people or helping people <laughs> make their commutes a lot shorter. Uh, so let's go on to the next question. This is a good one, and I want uh, Russ is going to comment quite a bit on this one at the end uh, of the question. So let me read this, and uh, this comes from somebody. Uh, and by the way, if you do write in, we take off your name and all. We try to keep privacy uh, a, a key to this podcast, and your privacy is really important. So we uh, we take a few things out. But uh, this person says they're based out of Old Bridge, New Jersey. And when President Trump is in Bedminster, New Jersey, my airport is just inside by two or three miles, the outer ring of the presidential TFR. Uh, and by the way, that's a, a really cool spot, Medminster. That's right uh, where I grew up and actually used to fly over that all the time. And there's another airport right close to that uh, where it's a little bit tougher for them because they're, they're right there all the time when he is in Bedminster. But uh, he continues, uh, to depart my airport VFR, the FAA requires me to, number one, squawk a discreet code, number two, be in two-way radio contact with ATC, and number three, be on an active VFR flight plan. Uh, my question revolves around number three, number one. And so he goes, given that ATC has no idea whether or not I'm on a VFR flight plan, what is the reason for filing and opening one? And the second question is, given that my airport is inside the TFR, how do I open my VFR flight plan before I take off in order to be compliant with number three above, number three being the fact that you have to be on an active flight plan. Uh, due to my airport's proximity to the edge of the TFR, I'll be out of it before I even get contact flight service, and I don't want to be doing that below 1,000 feet in congested airspace anyway. How do I stay safe and legal? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Well, uh, I think, Russ, you have a comment to make on this and uh, just, a, just a slight little uh, variation of, of uh, what sh- he should be doing. So, uh, Russ, take it away. Yeah, I think some of the um, uh, misunderstanding here is, is on a very specific word. And his question is he must be on an active VFR flight plan. And it's not actually quite correct. Uh, the text of the, the presidential notum is, is pretty standardized. And if you go... You know, so find any one of them and and read it. You'll see that the the actual word used is for be on an active IFR or a filed VFR flight plan. Uh, so the use of the term filed VFR flight plan just means you have to have one in the system. It doesn't say it has to be active or opened. Um, the the listener is correct that of course ATC has no idea whether or not you filed a VFR flight plan. Uh, of course, however, that's well, that's the requirement in the TFR notum. <laughs> so um, as long as you filed one, I guess you're okay. Uh, you do have to be uh, squawking a discrete transponder code before departure. So you're going to have to get that from ATC before you go, whether that's um, calling you know, clearance delivery on the phone or you know, IFR, IFR pilots are used to doing that, but VFR pilots certainly may not be. Uh, but of course, as far as ATC is concerned, as long as you're getting radar service and are squawking the right code, and of course are complying with all the other provisions of this TFR, uh, they have a lot in there, such as no flight training, no practice instrument approaches, those kind of things. Uh, I, I think you'll be fine. And, and I, we've, we don't get these TFRs too often out here in Oklahoma, but we do get them, and it has uh, we have had to kind of brief you know some of my students and such about how to operate with them. So. I think that'll help the listener, and uh, yeah, the the key word is filed, not active VFR flight plan. Right, and and just to clarify what you said, as far as no flight training or practice in, 
student approaches, that's within the TFR. You can fly somewhere else and go do your flight training and come back, right? That I think that would be reasonable, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Because yeah. I think some people might say, oh, my gosh, I can't do any flight training at all. No, 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 It's just in that TFR. You need to go somewhere else. And, and uh, I know that question has come up before. That's kind of why I'm making that point is the fact that, yes, you can go ahead and do flight training. Just do it somewhere else. And that's what you need to do. You need to squawk, talk, get out, and then come back in and do the same thing. So uh, good stuff. I really think that TFRs are uh, something that's – you know, always going to be here to stay because of the fact that we have so many. We have disasters. We have uh, presidential movements, etc., and it can be a real pain in the butt. But uh, it sure beats violating one because that can be really, really interesting. I know I've told the story before of one of my students who uh, he went out and got his commercial pilot certificate. He busted a TFR, had to do everything all over again. He had to take his private, his instrument, his commercial check rides over again. So that was kind of sad. Uh, actually, I don't think I need to do the instrument. He had to do the commercial over. So a lot of cost to him, and he couldn't actually fly. I think they made him uh, stop flying for about six months is uh, how long it was. So anyway, thanks for the question. Great stuff. I appreciate it. And uh, it is pr- it's pretty cool to see all the helicopters, all the air- airplanes around. Obviously, I go visit uh, my family's up there in Air Bedminster, New Jersey. Uh, but it also can be a little bit of a challenge for us uh, flying GA, especially in that, that TFR zone, and especially for some of the flight schools there. So, so we do feel for all you folks that are out there doing that. Uh, moving on to the next one is actually a comment. And by the way, you can always post comments on the on the website, stuckmikeavcast.com, and that's where this comes in. And his comment is, it says, I enjoy your podcast, guys. As a glider pilot, I especially enjoyed the episode with Jim G. I thought I'd recommend a couple of videos if you're interested. The first one is on a montage of soaring flights in the Alps. It's truly a work of art, and here's a link. By the way, these links we're going we're gonna to put in the show notes in the podcast, so this is uh, what he's talking about. It Actually, they are pretty cool. I took, took a look at them, and uh, really neat stuff. He has another one. It's the, uh, uh, a video uh, for, with a bunch of you, you know, young members that they put together at the Soaring Club and the Texas Soaring Association, and I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, so that, that's another one should check out and uh, he continues he said he thought jim did a good job of explaining soaring but i think it's hard to convey just how far and fast gliders can fly so here's a link to part of one of the races of the 2014 fai soaring grand prix and that's also a neat little link by the way that's another thing that i've uh uh, really looked into doing le- recently because the neat thing about where I'm living is I'm only 40 minutes away from uh, two different glider ports and I've, I'm seriously thinking of finishing up my soaring or my gliding rating and it is a lot of fun and it's really neat. I did not realize also how far <laughs> these uh, aircraft and gliders can fly and how for how long. It's amazing. Some of these people are up there for hours. Anyway, he uh, continues, I hope you enjoy the, these. And uh, can you link these videos in the comments of episode 147? Uh, we'll do that. And we also will do that in this episode, too. So thanks so much for the videos. I love when people share cool videos that are fun and a lot of fun with flying. Uh, and people that are real passionate about aviation put to together some really cool videos so please share them with us even those folks that you uh, you maybe watch and you think there's a real good one so send those in to us uh, awesome we love jim g and we're going to definitely have him on again he's a terrific person uh anyway continue on the uh, next question coming in and again uh, uh russ and i will we'll get into this and also i'd like to you know anybody else wants to 
you know tack into this we'll answer we have too long a long and a short answer i i'll let i don't know if we'll, i'll do the short one first but here we go uh i got a, a pilot who was flying into fort lauderdale who asked this question uh and the fort lauderdale airport was at the major airport the uh the international airport there and he asks uh why is there an rnav gps y runway 28 right and another approach flight that says rnav gps zulu to runway 28 right you know what's the significance of the y and the z in the name and uh that was kind of his question i thought that was that was kind of interesting and uh uh it russ do you want me to you want to start with the long answer or do you want to do the short answer here well, if we give them the short answer first, they might not listen to the okay, long answer. Okay, let's do the Carl's. long answer. <laughs> good, good point, Russ. So, Russ, take it away, and I'll, I'll let you do the long answer, then I'll get to the short version. Oh, okay, yeah, you, you get the good one. All right. So, the the the, the question was, uh, of course, why are there a Yankee and a Zulu per, uh, approach at this airport? Well, actually, at at Any? Fort Lauderdale Airport, uh, there. They're actually two different types of RNAV procedures. They're not both RNAV GPS procedures. The Yankee is an RNAV GPS, and the Zulu is an RNAV RNP right. type procedure. Um, you, when you look at the plate, they look kind of similar. It uses a lot of the same uh, symbology and such. So you might not have first noticed that they are actually different things. Uh, RNAV GPS is what most general aviation pilots are used to. We train in, we practice, we, you know, LPV minimums and all that. An RNAV RNP procedure, though, requires a pretty advanced level of equipment. The aircraft's got to be certified. The pilot's got to be trained. The actually the operator has to have s- certain procedures. Uh, there's a bunch of limitations. You're not going to see the equipment to fly an RNP procedure in a normal general aviation airplane. We're talking, you know, more like uh, you know business jets and above. Um, in fact, at the bottom of the RNF RNP Zulu per approach in question, the words authorization required are way at, at the bottom there. So, uh, this was one of those cases where if you're not sure whether you're authorized, it likely means you aren't. <laughs> okay. Cause all this training and stuff you would have to go through to be authorized, you wouldn't know. Uh, there is an advisory circular 90-101A that, uh, contains what's required to get approval to do that but you just a quick look through it shows you it's not really something for a 172 uh, so essentially you can ignore any procedure you see with rnav rnp in the title unless you know you're allowed to to fly those but the more general question here is what is the difference between a yankee and a zulu procedure because sometimes you see an rnav gps y and z procedure to the same runway both of which you can fly with your Garmin 430W or whatever you have. Um, often, this is just because one procedure, and it's usually the Z version, the Zulu version, will have lower minimums or sometimes a slightly different design. It might have LPV minimums, whereas the Yankee only has LNAV. The Zulu might allow lower DA or MDA, uh, maybe only if the aircraft can meet a increased climb gradient on a missed approach or a missed approach design might be different. It could be any of a number of things. Uh, you can even see more than just Yankee and Zulu. Uh, Rifle Colorado, uh, if anyone wants to look it up, it's uh, Romeo India Lima, R-I-L. Romeo 26 has RNAV GPS W and X and an RNAV R&P, Yankee and Zulu. So it's got four types of RNAV approaches there. Uh, and you if you look at them, you'll see that the difference between them all are kind of some of the things I just discussed. Uh, LPV, LNAV, missed approach climb gradients, different fixes, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so when you're loading a procedure in your GPS, we'll, we'll assume um, we're talking about a, a normal 
uh, light general aviation aircraft here, you really need to pay attention to which letter you're selecting. So at rifle, you load it up in your, say, your 430 or 530W or even, you know, the 650, 750 or, you know, the, the Avidyne offerings or anything else. It shouldn't show the RNAV RNP approaches because you can't fly them. They're not loaded in there. But it will show the RNAV GPS W and X. So you got to make sure you pick the right one, obviously. Uh, but it's a great question. And now, Carl, your turn for the simple answer. Yes, I, I get the simple one. But but to go back, I think this was a great explanation, by the way, that you did. And Thanks. and also the fact that one of the things you have to, and you pointed this out, and I want to go back to that. If it's not in your database, you can do it. Uh, some people have have databases that don't have all these in there and even you would think they'd have the simple ones like the gps certain databases don't have the gps they'll only have the rmp um, one of the databases i have is similar to that at my work uh, that it's like that so i don't even have the gps approach and i thought that was awesome and of course another thing you brought up and i think uh, some people will ask this question, so we might go into it just a little bit, is you talked about some of them having different missed approach climb gradients and fixes on the missed approach. Uh, so there are some differences there. Remember that you have to look at the – don't assume – that you can do the missed approach on every single approach plate. You have to make sure that you can, you can actually comply with that climb gradient. And that's something that I think we don't think about often if we don't fly in those areas that have hills and terrain at the other end of the runway. And I think it's important for us to maybe go back and review that. So if you're somebody who flies in Florida where there, there is no terrain, <laughs> then you might want to go take a look and, and just review what that is. And I think those were some really cool examples. So, so I really like that. So now now, I'm going to give you the answer that you give to the examiner when he asks you or she asks you that question because you want to give them the shortest answer so you don't hang yourself because then they go down into the whole the scheme of things and, and down this rabbit hole. But uh, one of the things, if you look at, and I always point people this to this point, uh, it's the Instrument Procedures Handbook. I think it's really cool. In Chapter 4, there's a thing called Naming Conventions, and it talks about straight-in approaches as another title. Uh, and basically, if there's two or more straight-in approaches with the same type of guidance existing for a runway, the letter suffix is added to the title of the approach so that it can be easily identified. Uh, these approach charts start with the letter Z and continue in reverse alphabetical order. And uh, so Z, Y, W, let's see, yeah, I can't do it. But I, it goes backwards, so that's that's how it works there. So, yeah, that that's a simple answer. It's, uh, you know, two or more approaches with the same type of guidance exists for that runway, and that's why they have a different suffix, starting with Z and going backwards in the alphabet. Uh, so that's a simple answer, but I really, uh, that was really cool, though. Uh, and we will also have, by the way, uh, I know uh, Russ will give me links, and we're going to have those in the show notes, so you can look at those examples. So those are really good examples. Uh, uh, let's see. Do we have time? Yes, we do. We have time for another question. Actually, it's a couple of questions from the same person. Uh, this was actually one that was called in to me, so I, I actually had to, uh, uh, you know, you know, write these down and put them on a piece of paper and type them up. But anyway, um, I get from a listener, and and the listener asks a couple of questions. I think they're kind of indirect, but um, it, it went down this little, like I said, rabbit hole. First of all, he asked, "Can I instruct?" without a commercial pilot certificate? And also, do I need a commercial pilot certificate uh, to become a CFI? The second question is easier. Uh, Russ, uh, to become a CFI, uh, you definitely, you, yes or no, you need to have the pilot cert commercial pilot certificate. 
yes, it's pretty clearly spelled out. You need to you need to have that to become a CFI. Absolutely. Okay, and now the next one is: Can I instruct without a commercial pilot certificate? Which is kind of interesting. And we're again, we're just talking. He, he's a, a private pilot. And I know there's many other different ways you can go down this route, and we'll talk a little bit about that because I, I think some people are going to yell and say, "Oh, wait a minute, how about other things?" Uh, so can, yeah, yeah. There, there so that's where that's where you're yes. that's where you're not. I think your answer is going to be, "Can I instruct without a commercial pilot certificate?" And your answer is, "It's." What? Not really, or maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> anybody can teach anybody right. anything at any time, right? Right. You know. Right. So you can. Yeah, I think the the um, the listener was asking, "Can I, you know, officially flight instruct without a commercial pilot?" So mm-hmm. The answer to that is no. But of course, you know, you can teach anybody anything you want. You know, it just doesn't necessarily count for you know towards a rating or such. Um, but then. I think, uh, Victoria, you brought up an interesting point about my previous answer. wasn't quite correct, was it? Yeah, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, sport pilots mm-hmm. can be flight instructors for only sport pilots only. So it's a sport pilot flight instructor rating. I've only seen a few of them, but they're out there. Cool, cool. That's awesome. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. And uh it's interesting. Can you instruct without a commercial pilot certificate? Uh, yes, all you need is your ATP, and you can work for an airline. You don't need your. You don't even need a CFI to teach. You can just be an ATP and be teaching at an airline without any flight instructor certificate, and uh, you can actually become an examiner too without that. So it's kind of interesting. There's there's a lot of little caveats. I know we're probably talking more along the lines of somebody asking that question if they're you know wanting to to become a CFI at the local flight schools. I think really where this was going, it was kind of a general question, so I'm not really sure what the intent was, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of take it that way. Another really cool thing that came up is um and, and during the conversation wanted to, he wanted to know if they can the person or anybody can get the commercial pilot certificate without an instrument rating and you can but there's there's a couple things isn't there russ there's a few limitations well there's a lot of limitations i mean mostly based around uh yeah well i'll give you the i guess the typical example that's pretty much i think about all you could do uh, you wouldn't be able to fly, you know, long distances or fly for, uh, you know, people from point A to point B so much. But I know of a couple situations where somebody owned some kind of a, you know, popular warbird aircraft, a T six or something like that, and they wanted to give rides at air shows. So the, they didn't have their commercial certificate, they didn't have an instrument rating, but they passed their commercial check ride. They had the limitations on it uh, that you you can't. You have to stay within a certain radius of your uh, of where you take off. So he would fly to air shows, you know, just as a private pilot or whatever, and then he would do rides uh, using his commercial certificate without an instrument rating, which was perfectly legitimate. And then he'd at the end of the day he'd fly back just as a as a private pilot, Part ninety one operations. So uh, there are some limited areas of work, but if you're trying to get any real uh, I shouldn't say real. I guess that was real, but 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 any of the more normal uh, em- employment opportunities, uh, you w- you do need an instrument rating on your commercial certificate, and that that's assuming that's airplane specific. I mean, you know, we're yeah, helicopters and that kind of stuff is would be different. Yeah, and that and there's very few people that don't uh, have their instrument rating, and 
have the commercial license because it is limiting. And it's also, uh, usually we suggest not to do that because of the fact that you need to build some of those hours, so why as well go get your instrument rating anyway while you're building those hours. But if you don't have access to one, hey, that's you can do it. You can actually get your commercial pilot certificate without the instrument rating. Uh, also, as the discussion came in, I wrote down another question he asked. He asked, uh, do I need a medical to instruct? No, you can sit here and teach people all day long. And I think what he's really saying is, do I need my medical to instruct in an airplane? And if so, what class medical do I need? Uh, it One of the things that uh, I just love bringing this up, I have a, a real good friend and uh, who passed while, away a while ago, and he used to fly with the American Volunteer Group, uh, and uh, actually they're called the Flying Tigers, and he was rather old, and he, his medica- medical went away. He had like 25,000 hours. He couldn't get his medical. Was he teaching? He was teaching all the time. He just uh, had to make sure that uh, he was in the airplane with someone that actually could fly as, as a pilot in command of that aircraft. Uh, he also couldn't have that person go under the hood and because he couldn't be PIC and the person, is, it was actually his granddaughter he was teaching how to fly, uh, would actually come in the simulator with me. And it was really quite interesting because here's this person with all this knowledge but couldn't fly, couldn't instruct because he didn't have a medical. Um, but th- And this is, I know, Rush, you... Uh, you said this too that you're limited to students but i know tom had done a lot of research on this and before i asked tom this one of the things that that you have to make sure of is you know what you're doing when the fa comes because when i was working as assistant uh, chief instructor at one of the flight schools in texas I had the FA come up and they were going to shut us down because a lot of our flight instructors only had a, a third class medical. And uh, they said, well, you you can't be teaching right now. It's like, no, no, this is correct. And we had to go through the whole process. But make sure you know what you're talking about and you can go to the references and find those references as to whether you can or cannot uh, teach with that third class medical. So, Tom, I know you did a little research lately and I thought it was kind of cool. We, t- we discussed it a little. Maybe there's some more information. But, um, you know, as far as as being able to teach and your medical, you you discovered a few things. So maybe you could share some of that with us. Yeah, I was um, yeah just kind of poking around with it. It was a question that came up, and and uh, was trying to figure out what would be a you know how I could or how someone could keep on teaching if they were um, um, if lost a level of their medical. And um, you know, uh, I had a little. Of, it was actually me. I had an overlap, and I went from a third class, a second class back down to a third class, but I was still able to be PIC of the aircraft. And as long as you can fulfill those functions, you were, I was still able to keep on teaching. Now it, it, um, it, it's that level where you don't have the medical that, uh, like you were saying, this other instructor that had to go through and, and make sure that everybody that he was flying with was capable of being PIC and it, and it limited what type of instruction that he could do, but he was still flying, wasn't he? Yeah, it sure was. And by the way, if your if your medical is revoked, you can still teach. You just uh, in general, we just can't really sign people's logbooks and be out there being the pilot in command, that type of thing. And uh, but it's really if you have a ton of experience and you lost your medical, still get out there and teach. I really encourage that. We have people at the college who lost their medical years ago, and they're still teaching classes. They're teaching ground school. Uh, they're getting in the airplane. They're getting in the simulators, and uh, they they're limited. You would think by what they can teach you you would think but really they're not they're giving so much knowledge and experience to these pilots
pilots. Uh, they just can't get in the airplane with a student pilot, but they can get on the ground and teach them. They can, after they get their private, they can get up with them and talk to them and, and discuss instruments, how to do an approach. You don't have to be under the hood to, to discuss that approach. And now that we have simulators, we can do it rather inexpensively. So I really encourage you, if you're listening, if you lost your medical, uh, had it revoked, et cetera, please, you know, do, do help. And if you, you love to teach, go ahead and help people, help them move forward in their you know, and they're flying and uh, help them get their licenses. And uh, I think it's just really cool to see that you still have that passion. I know I do that. I take people up flying that I can't fly anymore, and I used to love to do that. People have lost their, their uh, medicals, and I've learned a lot from those people just from their experiences. The next one is one of my favorites, episode 145, Modern Day Barnstormer, Dewey Davenport. Dewey is an awesome individual. He does so much for the aviation community. He has incredible passion, and he truly is a barnstormer. So let's listen to that episode. Dewey, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, it's exciting. Now, Dewey, the way I found out about Dewey, and just a little story here, is that I'm at Sun and Fun, and I started doing some searches in YouTube as far as videos, and you started coming up in the YouTube search, did a great job doing a vlog uh, running around Sun and Fun, and I said, you know, this person is really excited about aviation. I had no idea that you did biplane rides, except I saw this little T-shirt you were wearing, and uh, you know it had it had your Good Times logo in it. So uh, I was like, "Good folks, excuse me, an old time biplane rides." That is awesome. the The people you talk to, the the excitement you have for aviation is is just phenomenal, and uh, a real great uh, uh, testament to aviation, and also to uh, to the passion of aviation. Dewey is is one of these people, and that's why we're having him on. Uh, but Dewey. You're you're actually you're a real honest to goodness barnstormer, aren't you? I am. I I feel well. I know I am. I'm, <laughs> um, you know, I started out flying a, a Travel Air four thousand, which I still have, and um, I would travel around to the different airports here and around in the Dayton, Ohio area, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, down in the Virginia area. And uh, in the fall, I, there's a farmer that lives nearby. They let me land out in a cornfield and hop rides for about a month. So that's that- exactly what barnstormers did. You know, back in the day, they they lived off the airplane, and the airplane lived off of them. So that's kind of how my travel air and myself has kind of made it made it work. Well, one of the things I love about barnstorming, and just in general, in an open cockpit airplane, I got my first ride in a Stearman, uh, my first open cockpit airplane. I tell you, I fell in love. I, you know, I fly in jets and stuff like that, and so do you around the world. And my gosh, uh, there is nothing like sticking your hands out into the wind and being able to look straight down and not look through a window and actually smell the grass cut and smell, in our, in my case, the orange groves and all the citrus. It's just absolutely wonderful. And I tell you what, I came down from that with a smile on my face. I just couldn't wipe it off. Well, that's kind of what happened to me. I, I mean, I've always been involved with old antique airplanes. You know, I started with model airplanes. And then when I was 18, I started flying a J3 Cub at a local airport here. And it's just, I mean, who isn't fascinated with an old open cockpit biplane with a radio engine? And that's kind of way I remember when I was just a little kid. I could remember DC-3s and stuff flying over and Stearman's and, and just 
you're just fascinated with it. And that's kind of what I did. Yeah, every time so I Spearman see it. was my first ride. Oh, <laughs> so it was. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it actually is one way a lot of people get a start is in those Stearman rides. Um, the the sta- you also fly another one, the Standard, which I think is a cool aircraft. It's uh, a little bit bigger and and uh, as far as the cockpit and the ability to to take more people on a ride, I think it's cool because the fact that you can actually take a small family up in that aircraft, couldn't you? Yeah, the the new standard is, you know, it's able to carry four people. It's a five-person airplane. And, uh, you know, it's we, it's the king of all barnstorming aircraft, um, you know, designed by Charles Day and, and Ivan Gates from the Gates Flying Circus. And, you know, it has such a significant history on real barnstorming back in the 20s. Is there's only eight of them flying right now. So... Uh, you know, I'm, I've, I was blessed to be able to get this airplane last June and, uh, it's really helped my business. You know, I, I was able to fly over a thousand people last year. Wow. Um, and that's a lot of flying. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I, I had a lot, I'm having a lot of fun with, you know, trying to keep both airplanes going, but you know, the standard is just, it has the elegance uh, with the wings and, and, you know, being able to take up little kids and, and their parents and, you know, it's the whole family, like you said. You know, Dewey, going back to a time of the barnstormers, uh, so we can understand, you know, sometimes we hear the term barnstorming, but we don't really understand what it is and, and what time period we're talking about. Um, could you tell us maybe a, a little bit of the history behind that as far as the, the time period and, and what are we talking here? Was this a time when, when people were flowing with money or, or, or was it a tougher time in life? Sure. Well, you know, I'm still learning a lot myself. Um, but really, barnstorming started after World War I. Um, you know, there's all these pilots that the United States taught how to fly. And then after the war, there's no jobs because there was no, you know, commerce for it. So these pilots bought uh, surplus Jennies and, and J1 standards. And then they would go out and offer rides to the United States. And they would be all over the country. And really, the largest flying circus was the Gates Flying Circus. It started out on the West Coast with Ivan Gates and Clyde Pangborn. And then they actually, over a couple years, they progressed east. And based their, their final base was in Teterboro, New Jersey, which if you're in the corporate world or anything, <laughs> that's the corporate jet capital of the world. But if you can imagine... You know, back in 1927, 1928, Ivan Gates had 11 airplanes all parked on Teterboro Airport. And, uh, you know, through their existence, they flew about 800,000 people. So they, you know, Barnstormers introduced the world, the people, to the air. They were the, really the first ones to, to take, you know, a lot of people up, um, offering rides and then eventually they started getting into the stunts and the wing walking and things like that to keep uh things i guess a little bit uh more exciting for the crowds and the the people to come and and during all this barnstorming at the beginning money was okay but then the depression hit in the late 20s and that's when a lot of the old airplane uh, factories went out of business and a lot of the barnstormers, you know, kind of went bankrupt and, and, and different things like that. But, and also regulation kind of 
um, struck and caused you know the the barnstorming and the ride business and the wing walking business actually to wash up uh, just because of you know back then it was the CAA but now it's the FAA they kind of you know start putting all these rules and regulations on things. Well, and, and so, I understand that that was kind of tough. I mean, they obviously did it for our safety, et cetera. But, it, but boy, you know, when that starts out, it's like, gosh, what do I do now? So, so now that you had all these regulations, I mean, what, what happened next? Well, what happened next is pretty much everything started being, you know, certified. You know, why I'm able to give rides in a Travel Air, 1929 Travel Air, and a 1930 new standard is because those airplanes were actually – certified aircraft back then so i have a type certificate site type certificate so i'm still able to uh you know offer rides and things like that because it was a certified plane so barnstormers some of them kept being barnstormers but then we started having you know air travel and things like that they started building more commercialized aircraft to take people places and and different things like that um Really, right after the barnstorming thing was the speed uh, uh, air races. So you started seeing a lot of pylon races and air derbies and, and things, you know, people flying across the country. So that was a lot different than what barnstormers, because, you know, they were flying old crates, you know, Jennies and J1s, and <laughs> they were mad out of wood, and they flew 65, 70 miles an hour top speed. But now they're doing 200, 250 miles an hour and, and things like that. So that, that brought a a lot of interest into the uh, public and and you know they had these big air shows and things like that with air races well the so, air races that's a it's a whole nother ball game i'm i'm wondering how that affected maybe the barn store's business and maybe people became much more interested in the in the air races and uh, i'm sure that maybe they had to become uh you know diversified and not just doing barnstorming but also flying really fast yeah it did you know back Ivan Gates would actually, you know, the, the flying circus that, you know, he was running, uh, each year they would go to their air races and, um, and different things like that to do their wing walking and shows. But eventually, you know, the air racing, you know, the barnstormers pretty much got shut down because of regulation. None of the Jennies were certified airplanes and none of the J1s. So they had problems, you know, what airplanes could you fly? And then eventually Travel Air came out with their aircraft, and then there was multiple other aircraft that were being designed and, and, and certified to, to be a barnstormer. But then people was more interested in air travel and commuting and, and things like that. And open cockpit biplane really isn't uh, uh, a big part of that. <laughs> and then we started the airmail, and, you know, kind of the airmail was kind of into the barnstorming during the barnstorming and then it kind of ended and then we started flying airplanes that were in closed cockpits and things. Well, now you're flying an airplane from this era and I, I know that you're doing it for a couple of reasons. It truly is Americana. It, it uh, represents a time. It re- represents a time not only as an antique, but also a time as far as people and and personalities and you know a time when when we came together as a country one of the things that i've always kind of wondered about is why isn't there the like modern day uh, barnstormers and maybe there are May, maybe there are some more modern day barnstormers that they're building uh i know waco has uh has the biplane and all but but it really it seems like 
built for actual the 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 rides and stuff like that open cockpit uh, they haven't really done much uh i i'm assuming in the past uh, couple decades no there there is not a lot of opportunity on new aircraft i mean waco is the only manufacturer that i know of um and there's a lot of reasons why i mean the expense uh, to operate an aircraft and then the liability um trying to you know, to go buy a Waco, a ride Waco, brand new, is five dollars $600,000. Yeah. So just the expense and to try to keep that aircraft busy enough to pay for itself and the insurance is, is going to be very difficult. So you have to be in a good area. And it's, it's not impossible, but people are doing it. It's just uh, there are some barnstormers out there that's doing very well. I have met a few. Um, I still, like, you know, every time I'm out flying around, I stop in if there's a, a biplane business. I go up and introduce myself and things like that. So, you know, it really you have to go back and and get these older aircraft. You know, a lot of people are offering rides in in Wacos and UPF sevens and things like that. Uh, some Stearmans, but um, like I said, there's only I think eight new standards flying, and maybe less than thirty or forty travel airs flying. So there's not a lot of uh, variety of uh, open cockpit biplanes that's even out there. That's why I think we see most of our airplane rides are in 172s, obviously. Something a lot less, a lot more economical, I should say. And, and boy, you know, it's, it's so much fun taking people up for a ride in a, in a 172. Imagine being out there, you know, with bugs in your teeth and, and being able to, to smell the environment around you and, and having this incredibly uh, sounding engine, you know, roaring in front of you. This is just such a neat experience. Uh, but, you know, Dewey, I'm, I'm thinking most people, I dream about doing what you're doing, becoming a barnstormer. And the journey from when you were flying that J3 Cub to becoming a barnstormer uh, didn't happen, I don't think, overnight. It's uh, there, I'm sure there's been a few bumps along the way. And, and what in the world? I mean, who? what day did you say to yourself, oh, my gosh, I, I think I can do this? And, and when, <laughs> when did that happen? Well, I think... I was in high school when I said I, I could do it. Wow. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's when I wanted, I, I said back then to my parents, I said, you know, I want to old, uh, own an old biplane and, and do rides and have my own grass strip. So, I mean, I planned this long, long time ago. And then, you know, through my career, you know, flying uh, commercially and things like that, you know, I've, I've been able to purchase, you know, I have four different airplanes. So, you know, I've had a champ and I have a Pete and pole and I've kind of collected these airplanes and eventually, um, what happened? I was a government contractor. I got furloughed from my, the company that I work for right now. And, uh, I went overseas and worked as a government contractor for four and a half years. And really during that time, I've really started focusing on owning a biplane and, you know, trying to do a ride business and, that's kind of what happened. I sacrificed a lot, four and a half years to do it all. And when I came back, I, I had the, you know, I, I bought the travel air, which I, I named my travel air ACE and I, I bought ACE in 2013. And even before I bought the airplane, I, I built a website and everything. And I just had made up pictures uh -huh. because this is what I wanted. <laughs> so, uh, 
And then eventually when I, I came back on a, a deployment, I was able to get my LOA uh, through the FAA. And it's just, it's something that, you know, I've just worked for and I've always wanted to do it because it's, it's a fascinating era to me is the barnstorming era, the golden age. And, you know, nowadays a lot of, you know, well, they don't teach any of this history, but even in the real world of new aviation, they don't teach what, you know, barnstorming is about. So I was, I've been really uh, blessed just because the people I'm around around in Ohio, they're in an antique airplane, so they teach me a lot, and they encourage me. And that's – I have a really good friend, Jim Hammond. Uh, he has a lot of very great antique old airplanes. And what really made me buy my travel air, he told me, he says, you know it'll work. And when I heard it from him – it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, okay, he, he understands what I, what my goals are and, and we have kind of the same passion. So I don't know. That's kind of what, what it took. It's just a lot of hard work. <laughs> a lot of hard work and uh, it doesn't, didn't happen overnight. I mean, they, we're talking years here, right? It's not, right. Yeah. So what, yeah. But you had this vision, and I think one of the important things about reaching those goals in aviation, I mean, we all have goals. Uh, some of us are trying to get our private pilot certificate. Some want to get their instrument or commercial or learn how to do aerobatics. Uh, but you, from a young age, had this picture in, this, in your head of what you wanted to do. Um, there's a lot of people listening right now that are trying either to get back into aviation, uh, but they still have that vision of flying. Uh, they want to start their licenses, etc. Um, I'd love to hear you talk to them and, and tell them, you know, what what would you advise them as as far as you know getting into aviation and uh, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's who's saying, God, one day I also want to fly one of those. Yeah. Well, I do a lot of community. I go to a lot of schools and talk to kids because, you know, where I grew up in the country, I really try to influence people because I, I tell them, if I can do it, you can do it. Uh, yeah, things are a lot more expensive now. When I was renting a J3 Cub, it was $26 an hour. <laughs> well, now it's maybe 70 But, you know, you have to go and make that first step. And if you want to go get your license, uh go out to the airport, take an intro flight, talk to someone, try to figure out what exactly uh, it takes to, to move forward. Uh, and one thing I always try to encourage people that's learning, you don't need to go and, and rent that brand new Cirrus with the glass cockpit and the 172 with the G1000 uh, panel. Go and learn the basics of flying in a J3 Cub or a Champ Something like that, it's going to be a lot less expensive, and you learn how to fly an airplane. And then once you get your license, and then you can go and spend an hour or two and learn this new technology. And then now you know how to fly an airplane, and now you know how to use this new technology. And it, it's going to be a lot cheaper. So that's what I try to do. And, you know, my grass strip, I encourage anybody that stops by. Um, I have a champ. I've had I've been flying it for 20 years. It's almost the community airplane. You know, there's a kid that grew up in town. He got to fly this airplane for years for free. I just let him oh. I let him go fly the airplane. And the reason is is because the farmer I bought it from, 
he let me fly the airplane for eight, nine years, and I never put a drop of gas in it. So I'm just trying to give back. And, um, you know, that's, that's really my encouragement is just go out to the airport and talk to someone and, and, and see if you can figure out some way to, to talk to them. And, you know, there's possibly grants or scholarships, you know, depending on where you're living, um, you know, that maybe possibly help you out on learning. Well, and, and gosh, you know, of course, being the publisher of aerospace-scholarships.com, I mean, we, we really try to help people move forward. I'm glad you brought that up, as there's there's more scholarships out there than, than you realize. We're adding new scholarships every single day to the, to the guide. And, um, you know, we've been blessed that we've been able to create the largest online directory. But it's just for, it's for people, like you just said, it's for those people that want to fulfill that dream and think that this is impossible. I love what you said about, you know, it's not, it's not about just... Just the money and buying, going out and, and renting that that glass cockpit aircraft, uh, uh, you know, like a Cirrus, etc. There's so many other ways to get into flying and inexpensively. We we all want the Garmin's and the GPS's in our airplanes, but it is kind of cool to go up in, a, in an older aircraft because really, that's uh, even if it's just an old 172, like you said. Uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, just get up in the air. Uh, an old 172 doesn't rent for that much money. I mean, especially if it doesn't have any any avionics in it. And as a matter of fact, you know, you can buy one fairly inexpensively, oh, about as much as a car uh, nowadays. Yes, and that's really cool, isn't it? I, you know, I encourage people if they think they want to be in the career, I tell them go buy an airplane, go buy a Cherokee 140 or a 172, and go get your private instrument commercial, and you can sell that airplane for the same price you just paid for it. And uh, that's kind of what I did. I, I bought a Champ. You know, I was young. I was 20 years old, I think. There was four of us bought a Champ for twelve thousand dollars, <laughs> and uh, we were—I was broke. <laughs> I was working at McDonald's, and so we had this Champ, and I flew it every day. And um, you know, back then we we were able to put auto gas and stuff in it, so it it was very inexpensive to just build up flight time. Um, but well, yeah, I I highly encourage people to just go out and try to get in the basic airplane, learn how to fly it. And then you can move into the technology. It it wasn't until, you know, I got this new job, you know, since I started flying for net jets, I flew any glass cockpit. Right. Was, <laughs> well, th- it's interesting because a, a lot of people don't realize that the stick and rudder skills are so important. I know, you know, on, on the airliners that I fly and for, to the small aircraft, it's it's still an airplane. And you can tell a lot of those folks that are out there flying uh, in the fly general aviation, uh, as far as landing is concerned, uh, you still have to use your rudder and you still have to use the ailerons and, and there's, there's not, that'll never change. <laughs> you know, there's just, just physics involved and to have those skills, you, you really develop those skills, especially flying some of the smaller aircraft. Um, but going back to, to what you said is I think one of the things that, that I think is important for people to know is that. You had some challenges too in life. I mean, you you know, it seems like we went from there to to the biplanes, but being able to afford these and, and being able to give back like you you're doing, which I, is very commendable. I love I love that story where you're uh, letting a young person fly that aircraft. Um, there's there's some bumps along the road. You said that you got furloughed, meaning you were out of a job, and then you went to work uh, uh, overseas. 
Not that we can talk much about it, but uh, a lot of people don't realize there's so many contracting jobs overseas that you can go work for, both civilian and also military contracts. Uh, you know, and and we, you know, in the Aviation Careers podcast, we talk a lot about that. Where you know you can go out and uh, much of the flying is done by contractors, meaning civilian contractors obviously have to go through a background and get a clearance and all. Uh, but there's much of that that's done out there and. And you're out there uh, doing a lot of the same jobs, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as, as a lot of the military pilots, right? Yes. I actually flew with mixed crew. So I flew with military. And, um, yeah, I, I have four and a half years in, in the Middle East or Southwest Asia. And um, just in 2011 alone, I spent 290 days there and flying and and uh, doing things so it it was a big sacrifice of being away i'm a very homebody parents or i'm very close to my family my parents and my brother's sisters and their kids and so you know being gone it it, it became a lot of there's a lot of stress I, I must admit i've seen a lot um you know i don't want to encourage it for everybody i'm i'm strictly a civilian uh i have a lot of experience flying the most sophisticated aircraft in the world and, um, you know, it, not a lot of civilians get to say that. And that I've, I've, uh, I don't know, it, it's been a very unique career for me. I must say the the furlough was really almost a blessing, um, just because it allowed me to barnstorm, you know, I quit my contracting job overseas because I needed a break. I started, um, just being gone too much and not really a, like feeling reality. So I wanted to come back here and be by a biplane and I, I had the biplane and I wanted to go out and, and meet America. So that's why I started barnstorming. That's what barnstormers did. They kind of live free and just travel around and have fun. And, and that's, that's really what good folk and old time biplane rides <laughs> came out of. <laughs> and, and it makes so, us yeah. all smile. That's for sure. When we, we see Americana and, and, and flying around, I know that, you know, there was a seminal event for you uh, overseas that that caused you to come here back, and and uh, I think it was the loss of a friend, uh, and uh, and by doing that, by coming back, it you've you've been able to be a blessing amongst all these other people in life. I think that's terrific, and been able to inspire people not just to fly, but just to get up and and, and experience something new. And we talk about these biplane rides. This is for everybody. Uh, it, it's not, it, it's mainly for people to take rides, but it's not just for pilots. Um, uh, you've actually flown people. I'm assuming that that probably will never be able to fly an airplane, uh, but uh, it may have some challenges in life, but I know that must've been really exciting for you to do. I, I'd love to hear maybe a couple of stories of the people you've been able to fly that, that really inspired you and you inspired them. Sure. It, you know, and that's, you're exactly right. It's like, I can tell you so many stories and I, I have a friend that helps me fly. And, but when you're out barnstorming, you're meeting America, you're meeting the world. Actually, you can't say America because I'm flown people from all over the world. So you take a, a person for a ride that's 65 years old. And when you get done, they stand up in a seat and they yell back at you saying, I dreamed about this all my life. <laughs> and I dreamed about landing on a grass strip. And you did both. You took me up in a biplane. You landed on a grass runway. You know, and I've had people crying 
hugging me, kissing me. I mean, it's the Waldo Pepper. It really is. Um, Inc. Magazine did an article last May, and uh, they contacted a lady up in Cleveland area, but I took her son, JT. And um, JT's a little bit younger than myself, but he has some disability where he can't walk. I'm flying the Traveler, and uh, she went up to my helper, my scooter, and asked, hey, my son's in a wheelchair. You think maybe we could get him in this airplane? And she said, my scooter said, Dewey's always been able to get someone in the airplane, no matter what. So I'm busy. I'm flying at this big event. I shut the engine down, and we took 20 minutes and loaded up JT. He's never been in an airplane. Um, he never wants to leave his wheelchair. So what we did, we picked him up, carried him, got him in the airplane. I took him for a ride, and we did everything. We did the, well, everything I would do legally, the steep turns, and you know, I did a, uh, the wing overs and all that good stuff. It gave him a good ride. And when I got him in the airplane, his mom just started screaming because she was excited and happy uh, to see that. Uh, I was in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and flew another uh, gentleman and his five-year-old son, maybe, but he had cerebral palsy. And he was going to dinner with his parents and his wife, and he, he just come up. He says, can you get me in the airplane? I said, sure. And he says, well, we're going to be late to dinner. <laughs> So um, I've I flown to wounded, wounded Warrior events over in Middletown, Ohio that uh, Dave Hart puts on. It's, a, um, it's called a uh, Warrior Weekend. So I've been there twice, and like last year we flew 50-some Wounded Warriors and Gold Star families. And, uh, you know, it, it was really cool because everyone appreciates it. Uh, I appreciate it, and especially uh, – you know, for what I did before in my contracting job, you know, I actually uh, got to meet people that I probably, you know, possibly worked with. And, uh, you know, it makes you feel good. It makes me feel good to make them feel good. So it's, it's not just about the money. It's about uh, getting out there and affecting other people's lives. And doing that in your career is incredibly important and in your life is incredibly important. That's something that you are a testament to. And I think that's terrific. Well, I appreciate it. And it's definitely not about the money because I'm not making any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, it, it's don't go into barnstorming if you want to want to save up for that big house. <laughs> is, that, is that the yeah, advice you'll you, give? <laughs> well, the big house is a large tarp that goes over the wing. So <laughs> it's um, I, you know, I have lived a good life. I'm not going to lie because, you know, one thing I did go overseas for four and a half years, but I also had good jobs before that. Um and I'm single. I don't have kids. So I've always saved uh, my money and invested it in different things. But really, that's, you know, I was able to get a step ahead when I did do my contracting work. And it's mainly because, you know, majority of my year, I was never home. I was gone, you know, 10 months out of the year. You never get to spend any money. And, uh, but yeah, it, you know, it, it's not about the money at all because, if it is, everyone would be doing it. And, you know, one thing that I'm doing different than most, most ride haulers or barnstormers is that I barnstorm. There's very few of us that really barnstorm. We go out and we fly at different airports, uh, different events. You know, most people are fixed base. 
and fixed base is is really a good thing for a, a a biplane ride operator, but they aren't barnstormers. A barnstormer is one that's going to travel and go meet the people, go meet the world, and that's my difference. And that's why I say I'm a modern day barnstormer because there's very few of us that really go out and really barnstorm an airplane. And I can take credit cards, so that's that makes makes me modern day also. <laughs> that's modern day right there. Yeah, without yeah. <laughs> the cell phone, right, we wouldn't be able to do exactly. that. But <laughs> I think that's that's yeah. so awesome though, because all you need is just a field, right? Yeah, that's. I mean, you gotta be in a field. You gotta have someone allow you in the field. So, right. um, the field that I fly out of in in Zinia, they have a pumpkin barn, so it's, kids can come and pick pick uh, pumpkins and things. And in one day, I'm flying 50 people, and the only thing I have is road signs because I've been there three years now. People anticipate me being there. They want me there, and they just love it. I mean, what cooler thing is you go into a fresh combine cornfield? I mean, you got corn stalks flying and dust and dirt and stuff swirling around. It's it's really cool, and it takes hours to clean the airplane afterwards, but – it, it really is a lot of fun. Um, you know, they're, they have like a thousand acres of, of a field. So it, there's plenty of room for me to operate in and out of. So it, it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm sure everybody else is listening saying, gosh, I wish I, I could do that. That's what an incredible life you've had. Um, but it, it hasn't been without its challenges. I mean, uh, you, going, going back to, to Dewey, the, the young man, um, one of the things that's kind of unique about you, and, I, and we didn't mention this, is from from what we know and from what I, my research and in and, and yourself, you are probably the only African-American barnstormer that I know of and that I think you know of also that's out there. I mean, has there been what, what kind of – any type of challenges that uh, – I know that's unique, but any type of challenges that, that have come because of that, of, of your background? You know, I, I haven't really had any issues – with my race um you know growing up yes you know you you have challenges and you have a lot of people say things to you just because that's the way people are raised around here um yeah i live in a 99 percent you know caucasian white town but you know everyone knows me i know them they know my family i know their family um so you know, I haven't really had big issues here or even out, you know, hiccups here and there, but not as I'm barnstorming. Um, I did go to one of my first events in the travel air and, um, I showed up at the airport, you know, and the airport manager says, man, you're not who I expected. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure what he meant, but you know, I'm young. That's, you know, I was 30, I think 37 when I had my travel air first got the travel air. So one thing I'm very young to own an antique biplane like this. Most people are 70, 80 years old and can't even get in them. So they still keep them. And, and it's, it's kind of hard to, for a young, um, adult to, to come up and be able to afford stuff like this when you have museums and everything hold, hold all the airplanes. But, you know, I, it's been a good, it's been a good career. And yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only African American barnstormer in the United States and probably in the world. Um, 
but you know, I don't go around and advertise that. I just show up and my flying does my talking. Right. So people love my flying. Um, they love my, you know, I'm a barnstormer. I, I take a lot of pride in what, uh, everything, you know, I drive by, I work the crowd and, and things like that. And that's what people want. They want that entertainment. They want that also that safety. They want to be able to, to fly and feel comfortable and have fun. And that's what I give everyone. I give, I have not had one person dislike any of my rides <laughs> and I've flown a few thousand people already. Well, gosh. So it, it makes me feel good. <laughs> I can't wait to go up with you. I, I definitely, uh, going to get over there and, and take a ride. It's, uh, but, uh, you know, going back to something you said earlier, you know, this is Americana and, you know, you're, you're flying people from all over the country, but you also said all over the world. And, and I, I think I'd like to stress even in America is the world. I mean, there's so many people here from so many different places and so many different backgrounds, uh, that, uh, you know, the airplane doesn't know who you are, uh, behind the controls. It just knows you're the pilot. And I love what you said, you know, you let the flying speak for itself. Uh, so it's, it's really neat to, to see you being somebody who's an ambassador for the world, really, and, and for aviation. Um, one of the things too that you said you you know go around talking to people in schools etc and they I think it's neat to see somebody come in the door and say to them hey listen I've done it and so can you I have had I have this background and so do you and I've done it so you know I think you can and and just by doing that you're going to be able to inspire somebody somewhere who's thinking oh you know I come from a poor background I come from you know I'm a I'm I'm an immigrant from here or whatever thinking gosh I can't do it but but they can can't they oh, of course I mean that's that's the whole point that's why America is America it's a land of freedom and dreams and and you know my parents were both from West Virginia very poor um you know but my parents taught me a lot. They taught me how to work hard, and they taught me how to be kind to people. And really, I would have to say every job and every opportunity that I have received has been strictly off of, really off of opportunities that I've received by meeting people. And when you treat someone good or do something kind to someone, then it, the way I look at it, it comes back to you tenfold. And it, it really has. Um, you know, my, I grew up in a, you know, my dad was a pipe fitter, plumber. They didn't have a lot of money. And I didn't go, and I don't have a college degree, but they paid for me to go to flight school, you know, and they had to, um, you know, get a second mortgage on their house and things like that. So, you know, they, they made a big sacrifice for me. But then as I progressed, you know, I had really good people help me, which one of them was Jim West from skydive green county he gave me my very first uh job and i flew skydivers and really he set my life because it allowed me to uh i flew beach 18s and then i started flying twin otters and then i got typed in a casa 212 so uh, you know jim really helped me uh get a foot ahead with having good flight time and experience like that so it's every job i've ever received was was really meeting someone and they helped me and that I, I tell everybody just do the right thing make sure you keep yourself in a good situation you see yourself with some friends or uh, or something like that 
that's doing something wrong, you need to get out of that situation because it will mess your career up. You don't want to be riding around with someone that's drinking. You don't want to be around any drugs. So just keep yourself, uh, you know, on the up and up. <laughs> well, that's some that's great advice. I I, and I think that's great advice for anybody, no matter what stage yeah. of life you're in, period. You know, it's, uh, and, and that's why, why Dewey, I, I tell you, one of the things that attracted me the most to you is the fact that uh, just your persona is, is somebody that is electrifying and also uh, is inspiring to so many people. I just loved watching you walk around Sun and Fun. We never saw each other, by the way. People are thinking, oh, you know, Carl does Sun and Fun Radio. Of course he saw it. And we didn't see each other at all. I saw all the videos. We've passed the same booth, and I was, like, experiencing it through your videos, and they were awesome. Uh, speaking of which, you know, one of the things we we have to tell folks is that you can actually be – you can go fly with, with Dewey. You can fly, you know, in his aircraft – you do serve, uh, I think it's Dayton, Columbus, that area, uh, Cincinnati, et cetera. Uh, how can yeah. they actually find you? If they want to go up on a ride, where, where can they find you? Well, my website, it's uh, and which is good folk and old-time biplane rides. Um, and then, you know, my phone number, 937-877-0837. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Good Folk and Old Time Biplane Rides. I'm also on Instagram under Good Folk and Old Time, and also Dewey Davenport. I have Twitter. <laughs> I have Google Plus. I do all this stuff. It's a lot of work, you know. Yeah. I do all all myself. But you know, my website is. You can see my schedule and my pricing and where I'm going to be. Um, you know, hopefully I'll be there this year. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty busy with some stuff with work, but, um, you know, that's, and then, you know, I have a, a grass strip, so I'm just about 30 miles east of Dayton, right off of 35. And, you know, you can always come out here and see the airplanes and, you know, hang out. It's a good place to just kind of uh, spend the afternoon and watch the sun go down. But yeah, I have all the social media uh, outlets covered and then there's you can just google biplane rides dayton ohio or columbus and i'm really the only ride hauler around um there are some other ones that's you know just in the past year there's two walkos in the area but you know i'd hey every everyone has to have uh, they're fun also. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll definitely put this in the show notes, uh, all the links to your your Facebook page and, of course, your videos. I love your videos, by the way. It's kind of cool watching you at, at your work, both uh, fun work, meaning the biplane rides, and your regular work, meaning your other job. Uh, that's a blast. But uh, there's another thing, too, by the way, I really I think we should talk about before we close out, and, and that is this really cool thing. It's out in uh, in Ohio, it's called Barnstorming Carnival, and that looked really neat. I mean, there's all sorts of cool stuff. If somebody's into that that era and they want to go out, even go listen to like big band music, etc. Tell us a little bit about this Barnstorming Carnival that you've been involved with. Well, it's something I started be my fourth year, and you know, if you guys ever watched a documentary called Barnstorming, it's with Frank Pavliga and Andrew King. And a group of barnstormers that meet up and they go out to Indiana to a farmer's field. Um, well, it's that group of, of guys. So they all come through this area, you know, the week before Oshkosh. And, 
they're all good friends of mine. So four years ago, I went to the city of Springfield, asked them if I could put on a show. And they said, sure. And I started the first barnstorming carnival. Well, we had probably 45 airplanes show up. And all the airplanes on display are open cockpit, antique, 1920s, 30s, and 40s vintage. Um, it's free for people to come in. We offer biplane rides. And then it's, I make it very family-friendly. So I, I don't really advertise it a lot to a lot of the flying communities. But I try to bring it to the community, uh, public community. So uh, I have magic shows, clowns. Uh, rocket building. I, uh, Steve Temple out of uh, Springfield does a rocket building seminar, and all the kids get to build these SD rockets for free. And I end up paying for those. And then we started adding on paper rockets, and uh, the Waco Museum out of Dayton loans us these rocket launchers, and we were able to shoot these rockets off, and that's all free. Uh, I have bounce houses, um, and you know, it just it's kind of like a little carnival, but it. I, I put it on because I fund a lot of it myself. So I, it's not this huge ordeal. Uh, last year we had about 4,000 people and uh, maybe 55 to 60 antique airplanes that came in. And all the pilots kind of stay there by their planes and they allow people to sit in them and touch them and talk to them. Um, I do another thing called Meet the Barnstormer. Uh, we do a pre-flight where... They can bring the kids, and then we talk about like how to pre-flight an airplane. It's very uh, public-friendly, and it's it's not really set for you know like a a broadhead or an Oshkosh where a whole bunch of pilots sit there and they can talk to each other. I want all the pilots to talk to the community. It's it's a little bit of an outreach fly-in, and it's worked really really well. Um, it was on the cover of General Aviation News in uh, November. So it was my two biplanes and Ted Davis. We were on the cover of that. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work also. <laughs> but it, it's a great event. Uh, Springfield, you know, the first year uh, I, I put this event on, it's the first time anything publicly has been at that airport in over 30-some years. And still to today there's really been no city officials show up to the event. So um, I do have some local sponsors that help me. Um, and mostly I pay for the rest of it and I organize it all. I get the food vendors in and I bring, you know, hopefully all the airplanes come and I invite, you know, whoever, you know, if you got an old antique airplane, you're welcome. And uh, we all shack up in tents and stay at local houses and we have a good time and it's, it's, I think it's a good thing. I know it's a good thing. It's not um, anything but a great thing because it's very positive. And, and we need more of that in life. And, and Dewey, I think that's uh, one of the things that, that I, you know, I love about you, and I, I know that listeners do too, is the fact that you are so positive about everything in life. Um, you know, our connection is through aviation. Um, you know, you teach people you know, a lot. Uh, based on what you do in life, and you're a wonderful example. And uh, it's been great having you on. One of the things I want to do, though, is tell people that they need to go out to the website, check it out, go biplane rides, and uh, there's you can sign up for a barnstorming uh, flight. You also, I think, have a book, a little children's activity book. Oh, uh, yeah. Ace, the, the barnstorming airplane, you're still publishing that? I still have them, yeah. 
real quick, just last year where I went to school, all the first graders got aced the barnstorming by playing coloring books. <laughs> and uh, so they read the book and got the color in it. And then later that day, guess what? Ace got to fly over to school. Oh, cool. And then, then Mr. Goodfolk got to go and meet them all. So I, you know, and those kids are just, they just love it. I mean, they're hugging you and asking you all kinds of funny questions. But that is what, you know, I, I mean, you can tell I'm a little bit ate up in aviation. And, <laughs> so, and, that, and aren't we all? That's great. It's, it's wonderful to hear. Hey, by the way, if I buy a book, will you sign it for me? Can I get Mr. Goodfolk <laughs> to sign it? Yep, it always comes as Mr. Goodfolk. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, uh, and, and you can buy that online if you want to check it out, too. It's, it's awesome. Uh, by the way, I've heard a, maybe an airplane in the background. Is that what I'm hearing flying? Well, there was one that did fly over, but uh, no, there, yeah. none landed. None landed. Yeah, there, it's uh, but it's good to hear airplane noise. It's something we're all excited about. Uh, also, the uh, you got a really cool looking uh, T-shirt. This is a cool shirt, just in general. Uh, if you want a, a really cool shirt that has a really cool airplane on it, it's got the travel air on the back. Yeah, it's got the travel air on the back. Uh, it uh, just just everyday wearing. I think it's awesome. So I think you should check it out on the website. So uh, that's at the the go biplane ride you can get that all there too right i'll send you you can um it'd be easier if you call me but i have a new shirt out and it's even cooler it, oh really it has both airplanes on it oh dude and awesome. in color I'll, I'll have to send you a picture because <laughs> it is is really awesome cool as the cool. standard and the travel air wow um well but, um Man, this has been awesome, Dewey. I, I uh, unfortunately we got to close, but gosh, is there okay. is there anything else uh, you want to tell us? We got a few more minutes here, uh, as far as what you do and just uh, uh, where are you going to be next? What what's next for Dewey? Well, um, YouTube. Uh, you guys subscribe on my YouTube channel. I'm trying to build up a a, a subscribing thing for my vlogs, and I'm traveling all over the country and and. Uh, barnstorming. I'll have some vlogs with that. And Andrew King and myself and Terry Hall, we started this series called It's a Barnstormer's Life. It's kind of like a comedy of broke barnstormers trying to make a living. Um, you know, so yeah, if other than that, feel free to give me a call or email me. You know, calling's always easier for me because I'm always on the go. But, uh, you know, if you guys have any questions about trying to start a business like this, Feel free. I mean, I'll I can talk anybody into buying an expensive biplane, and and then you'll probably be mad at me if you go broke. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, uh, well, we're definitely gonna have to talk after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And last but not least, our final episode is episode one fifty one. How one pilot changed the approach in Brazil. This is an interview with Arnold Pieper, and uh, he's a terrific fellow. He uh, has a lot of experience in training on the 190, 195, the Embraer, uh, but it also he, he shows how you can go up against the government and bring a, bring a, a good suggestion and do it in a, in a proper manner and show a positive output, and he was able to get things changed. So let's listen to that episode. And uh, he, he's a special guest. His name's Arnold Pieper. Arnold is an avid aviator. He's an, actually an established information technology executive. And he's in flight standards on the Embraer 190, 195, and Lineage 1000. Uh, he's joining us from Brazil. And I hope I say it right. 
India Tuba Brazil. Did I say that right, Arnold? And welcome. <laughs> Close enough. Thank you very much, Carl. It's great to be here. I'm honored. <laughs> he's, he's very gracious in saying it's close enough. But in Diatuba. In yeah. Diatuba. Di okay. All right. I, 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 I killed that one. That's okay. Uh, we, it, you know, Arnold and I have, have a, a very similar interest. We're, we're both in the airlines and we, we love to fly uh, small airplanes. We love aviation in general and uh, very technical. And he's into IT, but he's been able to actually uh, bridge that gap between uh, technology and aviation and is uh, someone who uh, helps people learn how to fly the Embraer, but he's also done something really cool. He's been able to change the approach minimums in Brazil. But let's go back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about GA. Um, general aviation in the United States, and I'd like to get a feel because most of our audience, uh, you know, 89% are here in the United States. They, they don't understand sometimes what it's like to fly outside the U.S. You have had an experience both in the United States and also in Brazil flying. And uh, was wondering, maybe you could speak a little towards the differences as far as strictly general aviation and going out and to fly a 172. What, what are the differences between the U.S. and Brazil? Well, that's a very broad question. Uh, there are so many differences. Uh, in terms of regulation, probably the, the major difference between the U.S. and Brazil is that we fly Q&E here when we are flying en route. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we only use um, uh, Q&H, the uh, regular altimeter setting, local altimeter setting, when we're shooting approaches or when we're joining the local traffic pattern. Interesting. So we ref we refer to flight levels uh, as low as uh, four zero, forty five, fifty, and so on. <laughs> wow, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. How about renting airplanes? Um, in Brazil, there are very few places where you can do that, and it's typically um, only allowed for people who are members of uh, uh, flying clubs. Typically, uh, not too many flying clubs allow you to rent a plane and actually. Uh, go, go cross country. You can normally just rent an aircraft and fly locally. So you can take your girlfriend or your family, but uh, it's typically just uh, local flying only. Um, yeah, about 20 years ago, there was a, a big flying club in Sao Paulo, of course, Sao Paulo being the largest city in the country, where you could rent uh, from among, I think it was about 20 aircraft, uh, mostly archers and arrows. Uh, and go cross country, but they stopped doing that for a while now. Interesting. So it's it's not uh, there's not as much recreational flying, obviously, in Brazil as there is in the U.S. Not as much. Uh, also, uh, the the regulatory authorities here they they made uh, general aviation a little bit uh, complex from all the uh, you know the paperwork and uh, uh, the red tape that typically surrounds this type of activities and. Um, and uh, the, I guess the public that would be doing uh, recreational flying have all moved over to, uh, uh, they call them ultralights. Uh, uh, so, uh, I guess uh, they're similar to what uh, you guys call sport light aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, that, that has grown tremendously in Brazil over the last 20 years. Fascinating. You know, it's yeah. interesting. They're, they're, we're talking in the United States about air traffic control. I don't want to get too much on the politics of it, but uh, they, it seems like every administration that comes out, a uh, new president, always talks about privatizing the air traffic control system, etc. Um, is your air traffic control, it's all run by the government or is it privatized? Yes, yes, okay. it's run by, by the government. It's actually run by the military. 
in the military. Okay, the, the air traffic control. Yes. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it's a little bit of environment uh, difference, and uh, just flying around uh, recreationally. Also, I think another difference is the cost is a little bit higher. Um, yes. And I'm not sure how your system's set up. Do you pay for the airspace as you use it, or is it uh, is it free? We do. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have the infamous uh, user fees here. Ah. We have landing fees, we have uh, airspace use fees, and then uh, radio fees, and uh, I don't know what all, all the different fees are, but uh, it's it's typically very expensive. If you, if you own a private aircraft, you'll typically spend, uh, if you fly every weekend, you probably spend uh, any, anywhere between $500 and $1,000 uh, just uh, just for the cost of the flying itself without taking into consideration the gas that you're going to spend. Wow. Uh, just in user fees, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> so they made it that's kind of scary, I tell you, especially yeah. now that we're talking about user fees, and uh, that's just an example there, and, and that's kind of an extreme example. Gosh, I hope that doesn't happen here in the U.S., because uh, mm-hmm. that would that would squash general aviation, uh, and I'm sure there was a lot of talk of that at AirVenture about uh, what the, the discussions about user fees and this new system that they're talking about. So that's fascinating. Um, but yeah. now, if you if that was so expensive there, then say people like yourself want to go out and become an airline pilot, you have to mm-hmm. you have to go out and spend time in an airplane and build hours. Do they go to other countries and 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 what did you do? Well, um, there there's a certain percentage of pilots who will go get their license in places like the United States. Uh, it's probably the the major uh, country where people go to get their licenses. But back when I started, remember I started in the 1980s, uh, so I <laughs> I have a few years as well. Um, and when I started, aviation wasn't uh, nearly as expensive as it is today. I started flying in a Piper J3, and back then uh, we didn't have user fees. Well, actually, maybe there were user, user fees, but uh, the flying clubs were exempt from uh, regular user fees. Uh, we could pretty much fly for free uh uh, you know, all throughout the country, um, and uh, I'm I'm not sure if the flights flight schools today still have that uh, privilege. I don't believe so because the flying clubs is uh, the thing that sort of uh, got extinguished over this past uh, twenty or thirty years, um, and uh, commercial uh, flight schools are the ones that are basically running running the um, general aviation training these days. And I'm not sure they have the same uh, exemption. I don't think they they do actually. Interesting, interesting. So that's yeah. uh, that's another reason we see so many uh, students here in the United States from places like Brazil and all over the world because uh-huh. uh, even uh, even though it seems expensive to us, it's still a lot cheaper. It is, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you you did a little bit of flying in the United States, did you not? Yes, I, I did. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I moved to the United States in 1999. I, I already had all my licenses when I when I moved there. Uh, of course, I was in a different uh, in a different professional career uh, in IT, basically. So I flew um, recreationally on the weekends, uh, initially in California where I moved, and then later on in uh, Northern Florida. Um, what uh, my my most challenging thing about flying in the United States. Uh, was probably getting used to this thing with flight levels not being used and referring to altitudes. <laughs> I would normally say, you know, I'm at uh, flight level four or five, and the controllers would sort of, uh, you know, uh, laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get it though. 
So it's funny because, you know, you, that happens, you know, I, I fly to some countries where, you know, you do change it to flight levels at 6,000 feet or at, mm-hmm. at 60 mm-hmm. or, uh, and you transition to, you say Q&E, Q&H and, you know, mm-hmm. standard. In other words, you set it to 2992. In the United States, we do that at 18,000 feet is where we right. transition. Uh, there, there is no other place that I know in the U.S. Uh, mainland that that's different uh, from that. But uh, all these other places you go to, it's, it can be like a lot of times it's 6,000 feet or, mm-hmm. you know, flight level, you know, 60 and flight level 7. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, a much much different uh, way of going about things. And uh, so there's, yes. there's one, one major change. And uh, what's interesting, too, is that these other countries, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what you did to change some things on approaches. And, mm-hmm. uh, and But one of the things that you operate under is uh, different rules. Every country has their own rules, and they, they try to, mm-hmm. to, you know, coordinate with these, you know, ICAO standards and uh, these operating rules are called PANSOPs. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just basically, you know, the air traffic control system, air navigation system is under that PANSOP rules, and they're really for instrument approaches and, and departures, mm-hmm. et cetera. And uh, when we say PANSOPs, that's, that's actually underneath ICAO, and they're the, the, the regulating material is, is around that, is around the PANSOPs. And it varies, though. Interestingly enough, you think everything's the same, but it does vary from country to country. It does. And that was mm-hmm. something that really I had to get used to when I started flying to these different areas. And I'm like, well, I'll just have to study PANSOPs. Well, yeah, but it doesn't matter because if you go to one country, it's different than another country. And if you're in three different countries in one day, all of a sudden they're all different. You really need to dig in and, and learn the rules for each specific country. And uh, Very true. And that, that's something that's fascinating. So for people that are actually thinking about, and, and honestly, we're not that far away. You know, we can take one of our general aviation aircraft and go to these countries. And we can actually, you know, have those issues that we need to understand what the differences are. So uh, not that this mm-hmm. is going to really be a, a whole conversation, but pans ops, but there's there's some things that are much different within Brazil that uh, and one of those things is uh, those approach minimums in the United States we talk about having a visibility minimum but in Brazil they actually have ceilings don't they well not anymore they do but, <laughs> well, <laughs> but they used to <laughs> they they used to so and and one of the main reasons that we, we brought you here today is to talk about that there's a lot of instrument uh folks out there and people that are training to to get their instrument ratings that are listening and folks that are advanced pilots and uh and love all this technical technology but remember that mm-hmm. a, a lot of countries i think there's over 50 of them that still have them in their minimums a definition of a ceiling, not just a visibility. I think it's around 50. Is that correct? Well, it's actually um, what what I showed in my research is that most of the countries in the world were already uh, uh, using the same standards as the United States, uh, meaning mostly the visibility and our RVR. And um, in my research, I found 10 other countries uh, besides Brazil that were still using uh, I guess the old way of doing these things, gotcha. which means the uh, 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 using the minimum ceiling as well as the minimum descent altitude and the the descent altitude, right, right, or the decision altitude, I should say. Gotcha. You know, in in the U.S., you know, we talk about that. We're flying in an ILS, and we have a decision altitude or non-precision. We have a, a MDA. And uh, so that's that's actually where we make a decision at that decision altitude whether to continue on. But 
what we're talking about is something different, right? In this whole ceiling, yes. it's not okay. So, so what is the difference between that, like that decision altitude, and the ceiling that you're talking about? Uh-huh. So basically, to make that um, a little more clear, we probably need to go back a little bit in history, and um, and I say a little bit, a little bit, sort of uh, tongue in cheek, because I'm talking about the 1960s here, mm-hmm. um, when the, the FAA decided to uh, to change. Uh, so 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 let me start by saying how they used to do these things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, instrument approaches uh, typically had a minimum ceiling requirement. Um, if the weather was uh, above that minimum ceiling, you were good to go. You could shoot the approach, and sure enough, you would land. It was as simple as that. The problem is that the visibility, the uh, I guess the uh, what you could see out the windshield when you were uh, doing the approach wasn't necessarily expressed by the ceiling numbers that that uh, the airport would report. So the airport would report, let's say, a thousand foot ceiling. But you would see uh, the runway from, let's say, 1,500 feet um, because you were looking uh, in between the clouds. Uh, depending on the cloud cover you have, um, you could see the, the runway from a much higher altitude than the, than the ceiling that the airport was reported, was reporting. Um, and this is uh, what led probably the airlines, I, I don't know how this this happened uh, in actuality, but of course, I, I presume the airlines probably pressed the authorities a little bit about that. They would say, hey, this guy's reporting 500 foot ceiling on this airport, but I could see the runway as far as far out as 800 foot uh, from, eight, from uh, an 800 foot standpoint, and I could see the runway pretty well. Um, so this is when they decided to to change the uh, the way to do this a little bit, and they instituted the minimum descent altitude um, uh, and or the decision altitude if it's a precision approach. And um, in this way, it doesn't really matter what the ceiling is doing. Uh, you can always go as low as the minimum descent altitude if it's a non-precision or a decision altitude if it's a precision approach. You, you can always go to that altitude. Uh, now, in order to see the runway, you have to have a certain visibility for when you reach that point. Um, and this is uh, the new, let's say, this is what became the new standard, the visibility. Uh, and the ceiling pretty much was ignored from that point on. So, so what, what is, well, just back up a little bit. What's the problem with having that visibility, or excuse me, that ceiling, having that ceiling in there? Uh, and why is that such an issue? Because uh, uh, we're trying to define that problem. You know, who cares if it's mm-hmm. a ceiling of 500 feet? Exactly. Uh, the, the problem is, is exactly the, uh, the fact that uh, if you, let's say you have uh, broken clouds, uh, broken, broken clouds, uh, well, t- even, even if there's a 500-foot uh, cloud base above the airport where the weatherman is taking that measurement, mm-hmm. um, this doesn't necessarily reflect what, uh, what the pilot is seeing out the windshield when he's on the approach. Um, he, there, may, there may even not be any clouds at all uh, at the actual final approach area. This is this is what uh, made the airlines feel a little um, 
uh, how can I say, a little frustrated, if you will. And this is the way I felt when I was when I uh, came back to fly here in Brazil a few years ago, uh, because I w I would uh, go through this experience myself uh, now in 2016. <laughs> you know, I, I would see a ceiling reported, and and then I, and I would shoot the approach, and I can I can see the runway, and uh, even though it was uh, way above that ceiling. So the the problem being this is that if you have a ceiling that's reported as say 500 feet and you can see the runway, it's you you can't shoot that approach, right? Yes. And and there's the there comes the the real crux of the matter here is that you know right now if you're you know outside the final approach fix and they say it's it's a half a mile visibility and that's your minimums, you can go ahead and shoot the approach. Uh, if you're inside the final approach fix, of course, you can, you know, if it goes down to a quarter mile, you can continue. But, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, an air operations part, you know, 121, et cetera. But one of the interesting things is now that you have the ceiling, you can't even shoot that approach, even though you're in the airplane looking at the runway saying, hey, guys, I can see the runway. <laughs> that's really that's frustrating. And and that's that's correct. That's tough. I mean, that, that I can see how you could be so darn frustrated. So mm -hmm. um, now this is frustrating, but. You know, okay. So, how? You know, why did this come about? Why did the you made that you were able to institute change uh, in where you are right now, and uh, uh -huh. and get that to change? Oh, and by the way, as far as visibility, you mentioned something real, really quickly. Uh, RVR, uh, uh -huh. and we talked about visibility. So for those that don't know, that's a runway visual range, and they use what's called transmissometers that actually, you know, they can actually visually uh, through a, a mechanical device, an electronic device, to uh, figure out what the oh, excuse me what the visibility is uh, and these transmissometers actually are used in lighthouses when they turn on the, the fog horns uh, a lot of those uh, same type of devices are used there so one of the things that's really important is that we understand though in the US right now this is the way they're doing it but you ran into this problem and it was a real problem for who you were working for so so kind of go let's mm -hmm. go back to that again why mm -hmm. why the issue give us a little background there sure um Basically, we we reached a point where, um, well, actually, let me take a step back. Um, we have these um, regular meetings with the aviation authorities and uh, the other major airlines to discuss common problems and uh, implementations to prioritize infrastructure and things like that. And I was invited to uh, to represent uh, my airline at at, uh, at these meetings. And in one occasion, I was uh, given a, a list of uh, diversions and cancellations uh, that uh, had happened during the uh, winter season. Of course, the winter season here is uh, basically right now. <laughs> uh, we're sort of towards the end of it. And um, and when I look at that list, uh, I checked the weather at uh, all of those locations. Uh, uh, let's say there were 12 uh um, occurrences and out of the 12 11 were because of low ceilings wow and uh, yes and only one because of visibility so the ones that were uh, caused by low ceilings actually triggered this uh, uh, experience in, that, that, that I had gone through myself uh, basically when I moved to the United States in 1999 um, I had to learn to fly IFR in the US ignoring the ceiling or there were no ceiling requirements in the charts so in the beginning it would be funny because i would i would talk to my uh 
uh, instructor initially there and say, uh, so what about the ceiling? And he would look at me and go, what, what ceiling? What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and I would explain to him how it was in Brazil. And he was like, well, we don't, we don't have a ceiling requirement. It's only visibility. And that visibility is good, so we can shoot the approach. Oh, all right. And when I moved back here uh, in 2011, then I, I went to the, uh, to the opposite uh, uh, you know, experience of um, having to learn to fly IFR using uh, minimum ceilings again. So this, this, this is, um, having gone through this experience is probably what uh, made me react to when I saw that list uh, in a weird way. And I, and, and I talked to... Uh, um, our executives and I said, uh, "Well, here's what uh, here's what I'm thinking about proposing. I'm, propo- I'm thinking about proposing that we uh, basically eliminate the minimum seating requirements." And they sort of look at me uh, in a strange way because uh, they're used to, you know, they've always flown like that here. And um, but uh, many of them uh, still fly internationally today. And and they they see this, but they for some reason it just never, I guess it just never registered with them, the fact that they were doing this slightly differently when they flew to the U.S. or to Europe or even some of the surrounding countries here. And uh, so they agreed, and that's that's what I proposed. Uh, and of course, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit. I had to go do some research and. Um, and uh, explain to the authorities how uh, most of the developed. Uh, countries in the world were doing were doing it and uh, when I was doing that research I found a document <clears throat> on the uh, FAA um, website I think it's called the 71 let me see 7110 if I'm not if I'm not mistaken that it uh, that actually tells uh, the story of how this uh, of this change came about and uh, it was actually FAA Order 8900.1. Um, it, it tells the story there uh, of, of uh, when they made this change. It was in 1966. Interesting. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's interesting. If you don't mind, I could read it real quick. It's just a couple sentences. Uh, mm-hmm. But in that, in that document, and, and you have this in an article you wrote, it says often yes. the ceiling and visibility observations were taken several miles from the approach end of the runway. And as a result, mm-hmm. we're frequently not representative of the scene conditions encountered during the final stages of an approach and landing, especially in rapidly changing or marginal weather conditions. So that's actually what that, and it's interesting. It's like, gosh, you know, mm-hmm. you, you think about it, it's like, well, God, how could that be? And, and, and now you start thinking about it. Yes, they're right. Uh, so that, that is a good explanation. We'll have a link to that, by the way, the FA dot. Exactly. And the, and the problem is that uh, somehow this um, uh, explanation, or this this technical explanation, didn't exactly uh, get translated to most of the rest of the world. So much so that uh, I think the ICAO only uh, started to reflect this change about ten years later, uh, and that's when most of the rest of the world uh, adopted the same the same um, standard. Well, most and of the rest of the world, yeah. Most of the rest of the world, that's <laughs> correct. Some countries kind of stayed behind. Brazil uh, was one of them. Right. They didn't quite understand what this change was about, so they adopted something that I called a, a mixed mode, where they still had a minimum ceiling, but they also adopted the uh, MDA and or DA, 
which was kind of weird <laughs> because if you have that minimum ceiling that obviously you don't even need a DA or an MDA because you will always see the runway. Right. Wow, fascinating. So yeah. what type of impact, uh, just, just trying to figure this out, I know you said, uh, was it uh, at 11, there was one that was, uh, or 11 of them, uh, one out of 11 were okay to come in because of the visibility, otherwise they had to go mm-hmm. around because of the ceiling. They all would exactly. have gotten in probably. Now, this, this kind of impact, we're talking monetary, impact on airlines. I wonder if yes. anybody did any studies as far as that type of impact it had on that and the air transport we're, system. Yeah, we're we're going through the pro- through that process now. I still don't don't have those results, but I I'm, I am sure curious to see them. Interesting. <laughs> wow. I'm sure it has had a big impact. The uh, uh, IATA was uh, represented uh, in some of those meetings, and they were of course the first ones to jump on board when we uh, when we brought the idea. Fascinating. So now, what what is and when is this changing? I guess I should ask that. Is because uh, this is fairly new. This new ceiling requirement. Yes. Well, uh, we we presented this idea about a year ago, and it uh, just came uh, into effect in June the twentieth. Oh wow! So beginning June the twentieth, yes, uh, the, there are no more ceiling requirements. A funny story is that also because of uh, this change, um, the way this change happened using, a, I guess it would be a, the equivalent of a, an advisory circular, um, it, which, is, which means it's not a no-TAM. Mm-hmm. It's a little harder for the uh, airlines um, abroad, the airlines that are not uh, Brazilian, to uh, to learn about this change because they only, only usually they only look at no tamps and um, uh, during the first few days we had uh, we had a few problems in one of our major international airports uh, where the ceiling was uh, below the minimum what would be the minimums uh, just a few days before and um, some of the international airlines uh, actually refusing to shoot those approaches because it says it says so on the on their charts quite okay. big ceiling required right, right. so so uh, we learned that they they didn't exactly know about this change and uh, one of the things I did was actually write this article on on LinkedIn and uh, and it's interesting to see that it was read pretty much all over the world um, by many of the same airlines that we see flying here and uh, um, pens ops uh, specialists and people like that so uh, so it became a little more well known and obviously we also what we also did is we uh, inquired our um, navigation uh, providers and they issued uh, these international alerts which also helped to uh, to spread the message so I think now most of the most of the world is aware of it interesting interesting so one of the things that I would think is here you are, you learned of this and you learned of the advantages of having just the visibility. I, I guess most people would think, wow, this is a, this is a large mountain. I must scale to be able to change the approach minimums. Uh, what was it? What were your, what were you feeling at the time? It must've been a daunting task or, or was it like, <laughs> gosh, what were you have? Did you have any doubts in your mind? I mean, what, what was going through your head when you first started this whole process? <laughs> well, I, I did think it was uh, it was going to be a very a very hard mountain to climb, um, 
but it turned out that uh, when you show the facts of you know how the developed world is doing this and uh, how to, how how to reason let's say in the new in the new mode um, the uh, the uh, the logic becomes self explanatory um, initially we had we had reactions from some old timers uh, that will say well, well th isn't this more risky and uh, and obviously the response is well this is how it's being done in uh, Europe and the US and this will typically end the argument because you know the US aviation is about 10 times larger than uh, our aviation here um, you know uh, in terms of statistics uh, number of air aircraft flying number of uh, uh, flights uh, in the air at the same time and and, and all the other figures is pretty much about 10 times as large as uh, as our aviation here um, that's that's uh, how I, I try to always uh, respond to uh, to this type of questioning so if you go to the technicalities uh, the, everything becomes a little more complex to explain you know uh, yes it may sound a little more risky but uh, on the other hand um, you're you're using a mechanism to protect yourself uh, in the form of the minimum descent altitude and the uh, decision altitudes. Uh, these are your protections because they are designed using a certain criteria, using a degree angle typically, um, and a visibility. But when you go into these technical arguments, it's usually a little more challenging than, than by simply stating, hey, this is, this is uh, how the smart, smart guys are doing it. So. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, Arnold, I have a, I have a question about the and, sure. and we'll see. I don't know how much you know about this or not. Um, in Brazil, uh, you talked about the, you know, the fact that the the ceiling requirements are still showing up on the charts, and they will be for some time, and that's causing a little bit of notification and communication issue there. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. In the U.S., we have regular publication cycles, twenty eight and fifty six days, and if mm -hmm. we had a big change like this, it it would take quite some time obviously to go through and, and remove the uh, something like that from every single approach procedure. Um, what's do you know what kind of the plan is down there in Brazil? How long they estimate this will take? What's the publication yes. schedule? That kind of thing. Yes. Uh -huh. They they go through the same cycle, I believe. They uh, they call it the RX RX cycle, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and uh, because of the way the uh, chart uh, review process uh, works here in Brazil, they will, they will start changing the charts themselves uh, in January 2018. So we're still about, uh, let's say, four or five months away. Uh, well, I think that's actually not, not bad. <laughs> Any idea how long you, they expect the whole process will take? I, I don't know that. Um, I know that uh, it, they're going to be uh, changed as they go to the review process, but it's probably going only going to be a couple of airports per month or so. So it's probably going to be a while. I, sure. I would guess uh, probably more than a year. Hmm. I'm assuming it's going to be those airports that are impacted the most and, and go from there, if that, that would seem logical. Th they're probably going to be the first ones, yeah. Interesting. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting, like, like Russ was saying, this process of changing everything. And, and, you know, I know what you were saying there was really interesting. I was listening, gosh, you know, we, we look and say, oh, isn't this, this more dangerous, et cetera. It's a, and then you look at, 
at the results from other countries like the United States, Europe, and it's working fine, and that's great. Exactly. But you know, one of the things that I think that's really cool about what you've done is, and, and this is getting some feet, which I think is awesome. And thank God for the internet and and things like you said with LinkedIn sure. that people are starting to read these and from other countries and and saying, "Gosh, you know this this could work here." So has anybody reached out to you uh, in throughout the the world and said, "Hey, you know, we'd love to do this in our country. Can we get your help and your assistance?" Um, no, not not directly like that. Um, I I did receive a few comments on on the article itself, and uh, some people wrote to me in private saying, you know, that more countries should do that. Um, but uh, no, I wasn't asked for for direct help. In, because that would be a that would be a much larger battle, and obviously that's another country that you know you 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 you'd love to help out. I know, and and you I, I would because <laughs> we've talked about this before, and it, and it's really something that would help some of these other developing nations in in their air transport system, both in costs, you know, and in the ability to have a more vibrant air transportation system we could have exactly. get rid of this and and you wouldn't have all these issues with people going around or not even not even leaving you know for the airport and just staying put and canceling flights because of this requirement here uh i'm i'm really would it's it would be so fascinating to see the numbers that come out as far as the impact financially on exactly. the airlines and on the people just traveling you know people going to see their families and and their flights are canceled etc and and that's you know that's an issue uh and i really yeah, that's the the expected <laughs> benefit is exactly that i'm sorry to interrupt you there but it, it, the 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 major benefit is is that you're basically uh creating more flexibility in in the entire um airspace system you know you're allowing uh, more flexible access to all the airports so it should have a direct impact on uh and airport closings and things like that. I'm really curious to see what uh, the end of the winter uh, statistics are going to show. <laughs> you know, a, a little more something a little more technical. I I know you mentioned there was the ceiling requirement, but mm-hmm. has there's always been has there been a decision altitude and an MDA on those charts with the ceiling requirement on top of that? Or is yes the, uh-huh. okay all right. So you have all that together. And uh, for someone like myself, and, and I'm like I said, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, is that mm-hmm. it just seems so redundant. And uh, yeah, I guess it's amazing that it took so long for people to recognize that. Um, but I guess in your case, it, it was because of the, the a monetary reason. It's like, hey, we're going around. Why are we going around? Why are we landing when <laughs> the, you can see the airport? And, uh, hey, now, Carl? Yes, sir. Hey, Carl, you brought up actually a good point. I wanted to butt in here a little bit. Um, so. So you, so there was a ceiling requirement as well as the MDA or DA and a visibility. Was there a visibility on there too or not? Just the yes, there was yes. also. So so you had to have the ceiling to begin the approach. If I'm reading this right, but then mm-hmm. you would also descend to your MDA DA. Mm-hmm. Have to have the visibility to go in and land. But if you didn't have the airport in sight at the MDA or DA, then you had to go missed, right? That's correct. So kind of, it's like three, okay, three steps. Just want to make sure I had that. that yeah. Especially for yeah. our listeners. And the funny, too. yes. And the funny thing, Russ, is is uh, is that pilots in Brazil, uh, up until this point, they were only used to going around for uh, for weather, mostly on the simulator, because uh, in 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 real life, they will 
because you could only shoot the approach when you had the visibility and you had that minimum ceiling, you would always see the runway when you reach that MDA. So, so it was kind of funny. We never uh, you, you never went missed. Because, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> you would go miss for other reasons, you know, like uh, something happened on the runway or something, but not because of weather. Very but interesting. The, but I thought that did you do you have also like the category two and category three approaches too? Did you have those in the past? We we do yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be ceiling specific, right? So that <clears throat> no, would they be the, they would also have a, a minimum ceiling. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could see this Basic. is this is this is a tough situation. <laughs> yes. So cat two minimums, for instance, would be a hundred foot ceilings, and you know the uh, required visibility, and so on and so forth. And the and then the DA in that case would be around a hundred feet. Wow! So a, a zero yeah. zero auto land would never happen. <laughs> exactly. Until now, of course. Now that that's going to mm-hmm. change, Andrew. Wow! This is this is yeah. this is exciting. <laughs> this is great. It is. <laughs> I got. The other day, I got an email from uh, one of our pilots saying, "Hey, I used the new uh, the new minimums the other day because the we had a vertical visibility of 100 in this uh, airport." And, <laughs> and I said, "And what was the visibility? Well, it was uh, 1,200 meters or something, you know, which is about uh, uh, three quarters of a mile." And uh, and I said, "Great, <laughs> and that's the idea." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It, it, it's just it, it's so neat to hear when when people institute change and it's a real positive change and it's helping out. And, and Arnold, I mean, we everybody in the aviation community really appreciates what what you've done here, and um, mm-hmm. and really it's, it, it's it's cool that you're getting the word out. And that's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on because, like I said, mm-hmm. we have listeners from all over, and I would love for those people to I know. get out there and think, hey, you know, this is something maybe we can represent or present to our our country and, uh, and to our folks. And, and also, exactly. it, it also is great because you've taken us down a path of our history here in, in the U.S. and U.S. aviation as to, you know, why they institute this change. Not that we've ever seen that change because we're going back to the 60s, but, you know, there's some mm-hmm. people here that, that may have and some listeners that have. Um, absolutely, absolutely That's probably true. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to hear from them uh, how how it was way in a way back when. Yeah, and you know, uh, for you listening, it's if you could just write us if you've ever seen this in the past in the U.S. That's that'd be fascinating. I know there's we have some yeah. some people a little more senior that were flying in the '60s. I was flying in the '60s, but uh, I was a little baby in the back, so <laughs> I didn't really care so much about the the, the minimums as far as uh, except for the meals that were coming around, and which those have gone by the wayside too in, in aviation. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. The uh, so are you going to be coming back to the U.S. sometime, and maybe we could uh, even have you on uh, again over here and uh, meet up sometime. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, Is that yeah? I may come and visit uh, later this year. Awesome. I'll be uh, yeah. It'd be awesome to see you. Cool, cool. Have, now, do you get, ever get out to some of the aviation events in the U.S. other than uh, airline specific? Uh, every now and then, yeah. Every now and then, I go to uh, you know Sun and Fun, and uh, oh. I have never, as incredible as that may sound, I have never been to Oshkosh. I was uh, 
listening to you guys talking about Oshpice the other It's okay, uh, neither is Carl. Early. Oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch, that hurt. Oh, get cold in here all of a sudden. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maybe you could meet up together, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's he gets to go to the really good show on Sun and Fun. We'll definitely meet up next time when you're at Sun and Fun, that's for sure. <laughs> But uh, well, you you yeah. got a place to stay, that's for sure. And uh, you know, we'd, we'd you. love to have you over here. What's you know, one of the things I'd, I'd love to know. Just you've done all this so far. You know, what, what's what's next? I mean, as far as I know, you, you're impacting some other people in other countries, and uh, just just through your article and uh, et cetera. But but how about you? I mean, you're you're in a career as an airline pilot. You have uh, you're in flight operations. You train. You you get to fly this really cool Embraer one ninety one ninety five jet. So so where do we go from here? Well, um, I continue to do uh, uh, changes as much as I can. Uh, we, we I discovered another thing that uh, we could have an impact, and this is on the what is called a minimum um, FIR um, IFR flight level. Okay, it's it's uh, it's a lot harder to to say that than <laughs> than to actually understand it. Uh, Brazil is divided in five um, major uh, FIRs, uh, flight information right. regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of these regions is, uh, of course, um, uh, controlled by an ARTCC facility. Uh, in other words, we have five centers, and uh, each of them has a minimum. IFR altitude that's based on the highest obstacle inside that entire region. Uh, so we have these blanket minimum altitudes. Um, and uh, this is also something that we are suggesting that, uh, that be removed. It's caused, um, uh, it, it, this was something that they instituted back in the 1970s, uh, from what I understood, uh, because there were, there were no reliable um, uh, topographical information back then to uh, put on the charts literally uh, of course this is no longer the case uh, in 2017 so it's also something that we're we're uh, uh, trying to change and remove that and uh, let it be as it is uh, <clears throat> pretty much everywhere else in the world where you can descend to uh, you can calculate this minimum altitude yourself looking at the chart um, the, the way this impacts uh, our airline is that we fly to some airports that only operate VFR, uh, which means basically I have to transition from uh, flying IFR in the flight levels uh, into a VFR traffic pattern somehow. Um, and this is also going to have a, a large impact, I think, in uh, at least in the number of times we reach these airports. That's fascinating, and, and you know the uh, FARs, and we could go into that in a whole other discussion as far as the different boundaries and the different airspace. Uh, I think a lot of us that you know don't realize there are all these different fur boundaries. Usually, we're when we're looking at those, uh, we call them fur boundaries. I know that uh, okay, it's just uh, the FARs, and there's usually a uh, some type of a consequence or some type of a communication minimum that we need to have when we cross these boundaries uh that's usually mm-hmm. what we're talking about and that's you know you know your vertical boundaries and uh you know say you're going across i don't know say havana or you're going to centimere uh so that would be you right centimere uh oh wait you're on the other side so 
What would that be? <laughs> Gosh, now now I'm getting confused. It's all right. You're, I'm I guess. <laughs> that's the that's the west side of the country. <laughs> so they that type of those reach of those regions has a different minimum, uh, and that's what you're talking about altitude, and it's pretty yes. high. I guess uh, I never really yes. looked at those. And, and what type of numbers are you talking about? Like, is it two thousand feet, or is it really high? <laughs> yeah, I wish. No, they're really high. So, for instance, the Amazonica, which is uh, which is uh, a very good example. Amazonica is the name of the fur. Uh, it's probably the largest fur I think uh, that we have. It covers the entire Amazon uh, basin, and. Um, and the highest peak is literally at the boundary with Venezuela. I think it's about 11,000 uh, feet high. And uh, this defines the entire fur, which is mostly flat, about uh, 500 feet above sea level. And it's mostly flat. The entire region is flat. But you're limited to uh, what we call flight level 110 <laughs> because of this very tall mountain in the border of Venezuela, which is... not not even, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, it's not even inside Brazil. Um, and uh, the way this limits uh, our flying into some of these VFR-only airports is that, you know, I'm, I'm uh, up there at flight level 350 and I'm descending to this uh, VFR-only airport and there's a cloud layer, let's say, at 8,000 feet. And uh, we, we don't have the uh, VFR on top uh, concept here in Brazil, so... If I have a cloud layer below me, um, um, uh, IMC, and so I'll, I'll be limited to descending to the minimum uh, fur altitude, which is uh, in this case flight level one one zero. And uh, if there's a cloud layer below me, I, I have to divert. It's as simple as that. And you know, I think a lot of people listening right now are saying, "Well, that's similar to when I fly to an airport that's just VFR. You know, I have to be able to descend from the in route structure down." But but we're talking a huge difference in altitude yes. there. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. even even in the U.S., operators are are limited by that, depending on in even Part One Twenty One, depending on uh, the limitations on their navigational systems, where they have to actually descend VFR from you know from the in route structure, and that mm-hmm. can be really limiting. You're you're not talking like a two thousand, three thousand foot ceiling, which is normally the case uh, with the airlines here. We're talking eleven thousand feet. You're going nowhere. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you have a lot of gas and you can fly at 6,000 feet underneath, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's a whole exactly. different type of flying. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Yes. Well, that's something I'd love to hear more about once uh, you know you get into the development stages of that and doing more research. Sure, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, we're actually coming up on, on a time constraint here. Uh, but just really... Really interesting uh, what you've done with this, and um, and also you know what you've done in your flying. And you said you've flown in the U.S. and uh, have you done much general aviation flying in the U.S.? I, I think I may have asked that, maybe not. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, pretty much all of the uh, flying I've done in the U.S. was uh, general aviation. I flew uh, in uh, most of the Western states, I guess, all of them uh, with my uh, uh, wife back then. We pretty much camped uh, beneath the wing on, uh, you know, very romantic style cool. of flying <laughs> awesome. all over the western states, uh, the desert, which I'm fascinated about. And then uh, also uh, when I lived in Northern California and in Northern uh, Florida for a few years, I uh, also done a lot of uh, local flying there and been to uh, yeah. um, still a place called Hijackers uh, in Flagler, I think. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's close to you there. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I actually haven't been there. 
Oh, yeah? Mm-mm, not yet. But I will go now that I can look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm, I'm right but, here. <laughs> uh, exactly. Close to you there. No, but I, uh, I, I love my, uh, my flying in the U.S. It was uh, it's fascinating. Um, I think there's no place like, uh, like the United States uh, if you're into, you know, recreational flying. Well, thanks for listening to this mini-marathon episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast, the best of 2017. It was a wonderful year. We had some incredible guests. We're looking forward to the next year, and we hope that you might want to contribute also, and hopefully you'll see us at some of the shows. Don't forget to go to our Facebook page, check out uh, our website to find out where we'll be. Uh, like I said, the Sport Aviation Expo, but we'll be around. Uh, we'll be the folks in the collared uh, orange shirts, the Stuck Mike Avcast logo on there, or sometimes we do some work for Sun and Fun Radio while we're out there. So please stop by, say hello to us. Hey, if you have a news story or you want to record something, go for it. Send it in. Send it as an MP3 file, and we will actually include it into our show. Of course, keep it family-friendly, and uh, keep it fun, and keep it about general aviation. We want to learn about flying. We live flying, and we love flying, and that's what we do here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Love to hear from you. Also, I can't wait for the new year to get involved in many new things as far as aviation is concerned. Of course, we've moved the headquarters to Lakeland, Florida, and it's been really exciting. And it's been awesome meeting with you folks. For for the first time, a lot of you have been able to come by and visit with me because I'm right near some really large airports like Orlando. So if you're in the Orlando area, the Tampa area, Central Florida in general, Look me up, uh, shoot me a note. I'd love to meet with you. And uh, also some of our co-hosts will be out there in the field doing some reporting. So check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuckmikeavcast. Again, it was a wonderful year. Can't wait for the new year. Fly safe. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.